This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we help you uh, We help you live your life, for heaven's sakes. We give you the latest, greatest research, the information you need to know about how to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And who better to do it than with Jeffrey Simpson and, of course, Terry South. In fact, today, ah, I got great news, for, bad news for Terry, but um, it's going to be a really good lesson for you. Uh-oh. Everybody, you got to stick around for hour number three of the show because we're talking about superheroes and how destructive they are to little boys. Fake news. <laughs> it's not they're not destructive, but it doesn't make children more uh service oriented, more giving and superhero like. It actually just makes them a little more aggressive, which may explain Terry. What? It you are a superhero wannabe. Well, I didn't grow up. With I know, that's superheroes. The oh, sorry. Right. So as a yeah. child, my formative years weren't influenced by this necessarily there was a lot of gi joe so maybe there was I we'll, don't know. we'll have to ask our professor later um if no, may- never mind there was plenty i now that i think about yeah, it yeah. it's not superheroes like there are today but there's a lot of cartoons and robots and that's unfortunate like that, so. because he probably could have developed some sort of superhero powers oh, had sure. he been able to start early enough well i think we've I identified terry as a super cynic is it that is, your superhero it, it, power? It is my, probably my superhero power. I mean, really, I, and I believe cynicism is a good thing for us to have a little bit of it. You you have a healthy dose, a good, a, a good healthy dose of it. I try to dial it back. People get tired of it. You do, but... What would your superpower be? My superpower? Mm-hmm. Um, intuition. Tuition? Intuition. Oh, intuition. Yeah, paying tuition for my children. Superpower. That is basically a superpower. I'm very intuitive. I have good discernment. That's Mm. my superpower. I can read people like a book. I also have a superpower ability to sleep once my (sighs) earplugs are in. My superpower would probably involve uh, being able to function on only a couple hours of sleep. Really? Really? Yeah. I, I do not possess that power. Oh, you're a great gift, then. That is a good gift. We, we've got a lot to talk about. And we'll use our superpowers throughout the entire show. Why not? Uh, including when Donald Trump says we are going to you know, make America great again and get this economy flying. Is that rhetoric? And does, does any president even know how to get... The economy going again. There's been a lot of theories, supply side theories. There's been, hey, let's educate them up, make them more creative theories. And in reality, they're finding out none of them really have moved the economy much. It's always forces beyond the president that move the economy. Like President uh, Clinton took a lot of credit for the economy finishing on a high note with sort of a tech Dot com increase that explosion. happened. But that really had nothing to no. do with him. Well, and then a year or two or three later, there was a dot com implosion. Yeah. So 
And it, no one rushed to take the uh, fall for that one either. So, But we spend a lot of money on policies, and you can have a short-term gain mm-hmm. by injecting you know, a lot of money. There was – President Bush had the uh, – what the, he had a tax plan. Everyone got right. a rebate. Yeah. And what did people do? They put the money in, mm-hmm. in savings. They didn't go and spend it like he wanted to. Uh, President Obama spent money on the – on um, energy resources and mm-hmm. conservation and – what did people do with that money? They went and bought golf carts. Yes. And instead of buying like an electric vehicle to drive to work, they drove. They bought an extra electric vehicle to drive around their house. Yeah. Their houses were so big with McMansions. Remember all that fun? So our guest today is basically saying, ah, we don't really know how to move the economy or the economies would all be moving. And would be moving more than 1.5% consistently. In the 50s, they knew how to do it. Or did they? Or was that just the IBM mainframe? Computers kicking in or whatever. And starting just the IBM movement may have helped a little bit. So because of that, computers, people were more productive. Well, and and that actually was proven false, apparently. That was false, too. Wow. It it, it may have been. This is sad and crazy. It may have been. Computers were created. They printed more paper, oh. which generated a really weird false economy, and a paper became an explosive value-add concept. Huh. You would think the internet would be killing and making our economy boom, but there's actually no data showing the internet is actually making the economy boom. Right. Weird. You'd think cell phones would make our economy boom, but there's no data yet Just showing. the cell phones themselves at yeah, times. you'd think. Yeah. No. So we'll get to it. It's a pretty interesting little discussion coming up. By the way, he, uh, uh, an economist will be joining us and a historian. Very deep, 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 deep article. Deep. We had to – I mean we had deep. to get some shovels out. So deep we were shoveling. And I listened to it with Siri. But some people find his conclusions controversial. Absolutely. Because why not? Well, and also because – It wouldn't be interesting. People running for office want you to think they know what they're doing. Right. Right. They're a lawyer. They know the economy. We know the economy. Right. We'll get to all this fun. All that ahead. Plus, uh, McKenna Baus, Baus in the House, will be joining us with a little mind bender trying to get us to just open up our minds a bit. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world? MSNBC teased last night that they had attained the first two pages of President Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns that were sent to investigative reporter David Clay Johnson, who has been on the show before. Uh, As they revealed this information, Donald Trump, uh, they revealed that he had earned more than $150 million dollars In 2005, paid just a small percentage of that in regular federal income taxes. The documents show Trump and his wife, Melania, paid $5.3 million in regular federal income taxes, a rate of 4%. However, the Trumps paid an additional $31 million in the alternative minimum tax. Trump has previously called for that tax to be eliminated because, as you can see, there's a... uh, Because he paid it. Yeah. Everything so far looks legal. The White House said in a statement, it is totally uh, illegal to steal and publish tax Ah, returns. David Clay Johnson appeared on ABC this morning. He talked about what the documents don't tell us about President Trump. Well, it doesn't tell us who Trump is beholden to. I mean, we know, for example, that he owes money to Deutsche Bank, which is deeply involved in money laundering for the Russians. Uh, He owes money to the communist uh, bank in China, the Bank of China, which is also the largest tenant in Trump Tower. We have a U.S. president who's in hock to a bank in China. Um, We don't know who he's getting his revenue from. 
We don't know who his partners are or who he's done business with in foreign countries, and that could have major national security implications. So to sum Hmm. things up, the White House says the documents are real. President Trump says the story's fake. Well, and illegally obtained, but so real that he paid more taxes, like double, well, double what Obama paid. Right. So, so it's real enough to like make comments like that about, but fake enough that you shouldn't trust it. In the end, there's really no story. It shows that he paid his taxes. And paid his taxes 11 years ago. Yeah. So good <laughs> yeah. job. Good, Way to good go. job. Uh, if you want to hear that inter- interview we did, that Matt talked with uh, David Clay Johnson. I put that out on our Twitter feed Sweet. this morning. That was it's cool. from September we talked with him. Uh, defending Republican health care proposal Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer declared that no one, there is no one who doesn't benefit from the plan. Spicer's claim came on the heels of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office's report released Monday that found more than 24 million additional Americans may no longer have health insurance by 2026 under the GOP-backed American Health Care Act. This is it, Spicer said of the GOP plan. If we don't get this through, the goal of repealing Obamacare and in- instituting a system that will be patient-centered is going to be unbelievably difficult. Mm. Claiming things a lot of we already know. FBI Director James Comey will say on Wednesday whether his agency is investigating ties between President Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. According to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the Rhode Island Democrat announced the impending decision Tuesday. He said Comey made the promise to both himself and Senator Lindsey Graham during a March 2nd meeting. Whitehouse said... uh, Comey assured the two senators he would confirm if an investigation exists and the scope of their Russia Trump investigation because he had not been able to at that point say if there was one. So hmm. there may be an announcement or there, maybe not. Or maybe not. And finally, yes, I believe by now most people have seen this video of the guy on BBC were talking yeah. about South Korea yeah. and his kids come barging in the room. <laughs> they actually <laughs> talked to the media oh, yesterday. I know. Let's hear what they said. So it says, the couple behind the latest viral sensation is speaking out for the first time, explaining the series of missteps that led to the adorable clip of two children crashing his dad's BBC interview. While Professor Robert Kelly did the interview over Skype from his home office, his wife, Kim Jong-A, was in the other room with a, the couple's two children, uh, recording the interview from the TV using her phone. They tell the Wall Street, this is off to the Wall Street Journal, when the four-year-old Marion saw her father on screen, she got excited, like oh, recognizing cute. the room uh, that he was speaking from. She ran off to find him <laughs> without her mother noticing. The eight-month-old brother, James, quickly followed her in his baby walker, and because of a slight <laughs> delay, Kim didn't see the children appear on screen until they'd already been in the room for a few moments. She's recording, and she saw yeah, him on screen. She looks up and goes, oh, man. That would have, uh, you know, so Kelly takes full responsibility for the uh, incident. He usually uh. locks the door when he does these interviews from his office. Kelly and Kim feared he might not be invited for any more interviews. Oh, come on. But the BBC quickly saw the clip's potential and asked Kelly if they could run the clip online. He initially declined, then agreed. He found himself having to put his phone on airplane mode the following <laughs> day as it blew up with notifications. That's the couple sad. says Marion and James didn't get in trouble. Yes, I was mortified, but I also want my kids to feel comfortable coming home to me, Kelly sure. says. Sure. I mean, it was a, it was terribly cute. The couple also explained Marion's sassy walk as she entered the office. She was in a hippity-hoppity mood that day because <laughs> she just celebrated her birthday at school. Oh. Uh, see, a per- that, is, that is the perfect example of making family work. Right. You know what? This can only help this guy's career. Well, yeah. You More think. people are going to become aware of his work. 
and who he is. Some of the interview clips are, are nuts from him and his family talking about it because as they're trying to talk, the kids are like his his baby son's his hands are everywhere, pushing him in the face, yeah. and the daughter just all of a sudden he asks her a question, she looks at the camera and just goes Rah! or something. <laughs> He's like, "This is my life, people. This is how I live." You know what? That's uh, that, why I think it went so viral. Is everyone relates to it? Right. Wouldn't you love life, it though. if your kids? Just came storming into the studio right now. Yeah, they'd probably just be asking you for money, though, they, or for your you know, to borrow your car. True. Can I borrow your car? And do you have twenty dollars? They're not so cute anymore. Yeah, that's the funny thing about. See, God makes babies really cute, mm. right? Because if they just came as teenagers, there'd be a lot of abandoned children. <laughs> he gives you enough time to fall in love with these little critters. The wife is the one I feel bad about because she was trying to do the job of recording. And imagine her shock when all of a sudden the kids appear in her recording. Yeah. Then she has to drop the recording and she came in faster than anybody and had to then remove the children on her knees. She slid across the floor. (laughs) Don't they just have a DVR though? Who knows? Like why was she using She was making like an Insta moment. She was probably going to get that out on Instagram because that's how you do it today. Did you not know that, Jeffrey? That's That's what the kids are doing? Yeah. Hey, it's uh, it's the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. Caesar must die, die, die. Wow. Whoa. Did you hear something? No. Is that why when I walked in, you're like, et tu brute? Did you say that to me? Yeah, and I uh, I hid the knife that I was holding. Well, it was also like, Matt, could you turn around and just look at the wall for a second? Matt, look at the television. Just look over there. And then I hear this, whee. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. And then there was a, a slight pain in your back, but mm-hmm. it actually took care of the the bigger pain that you were experiencing. Right. Yeah. And then because it's Jeff, he starts quoting random movies and goes, that's not a knife. And then it's weird. So. That wasn't and then, bad. And then the whole thing got really weird. Uh, it was uh, the 15th of March was marked by several religious observances and became notorious as the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC by Brutus. That you, Brutus. You mean it didn't just happen in the play? No. Like this yeah. really happened? Yeah, this really okay. happened. Uh, there are a couple references made when we are speaking of the great betrayer. One, of course, took 30 pieces of silver to turn in Jesus Christ, a Christian um, myth. Hmm. That's what this says. Yeah. Uh, I actually <laughs> don't know it as a myth. But um, the other often equally reviled, certainly by Dante, was Marcus Junius Brutus Minor, known most uh, to most as Brutus who betrayed Julius Caesar. So there you have it. Et tu, Brute. That's a shame. Imagine how much better Caesar salads would be. Great point. Really good point. We lost him too early. (laughs) If only he could have lived a little longer. The, The Caesar salad would be so much better. Um... See, this is the insight you don't get on every other show, only on this show. I got another little piece of insight. So I listen to articles yes. with my Siri-like voice machine on my phone. I don't know what we call it. It's, I think a, funct- that's... it's a function of the iPhone. But... I think it's the Siri-like voice machine is actually what it's called. That's what I think they call it. I'm starting to be quite disappointed with her. Because, for example... It's all monotone for one, right? It's all monotone, and it seems like her vocabulary is regressing. Yeah. A lot of people have the same yeah. uh, 
feel about most of the automated assistants on phones? It, They're not progressing it, fast enough. It told me to polish my resume. You and know, I'm like, what? I what? think she's spending too much time on social media. Yeah. Probably. And that's what happens. I think she's I think she's got a an issue, like a drug issue. She I, instead of polishing my resume, I'm supposed to polish my resume. Instead of a superhero, it's a superhero. A superhero. Superhero. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not against a superhero. Or even the super euro combo platter. Mm. I'm good either way. But Siri, pick up your game. Apple, pick up your game, for heaven's sakes. That's all you need to know. Happy Ides of March. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, the golden age. Was there ever really an economic golden age in the United States? Well, post-World War II, there was. How come we haven't been able to create another one of those? And is Donald Trump actually going to be capable of doing it? We'll have a, an economist uh, giving his insight. Stick with us. Make America Great Again was the war cry of President Donald Trump, and this phrase is often associated with America's dipping economy. Mark Levinson shares in his book, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Postwar Boom and Return of the Ordinary Economy, how this dipping economy might not be reversible. Mark is on air with us today to talk about some of his insights. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for being with us today. Hello, Matt. Glad to be with you. Now, you're an economist, a historian, and um, I I read an article you put out, and I thought, holy cow, we we may have been sold a bill of goods for many, many years about the economy. Is Is it your contention that really there's very little that economists know to do to actually fix the economy? I think that that's what you're saying is is on track. Uh, my contention here is that we had really in the quarter century after World War II, uh, up until 1973, extremely strong economic growth in the United States and all around the world. And we've taken that as normal. We've taken that as our benchmark. Yeah. Uh, the economy ought to perform that way all the time. But in fact, that was abnormal. Uh, and and it was exceptional and it was nice. Our living standards rose really very nicely and, and people got much better off during that period. But normal economic growth historically is fairly slow economic growth. It's a you know percent and a half, two percent a year. It's not bad, but it's nothing like the four or five or six percent a year that uh, some people were promising in the presidential campaign, for example. <laughs> right. So really, I mean, if we stay at one and a half percent, it's pretty normal. Yes, historically, it's really quite normal. Here's the thing. You know, when, when the economy is growing at, say, uh, 5%, uh, around the world, the average growth rate was really 5% a year between uh, 48 and 73. When the economy is growing at that rate, uh, then your living standard doubles in 14 years. Mm. Okay? It quadruples in 20 years, 28 years. And so uh, an individual can see – I mean, imagine you're – over the course of, of your childhood and young adulthood, your family's living standard has quadrupled. And, and you can feel that. You can feel that in, a, in better housing, in a better car, in 
new appliances, in vacations. You know, your living standard rises in all kinds of ways. When the economy is expanding at 2% a year, it takes about 35 years to double, mm. not 14 years. Yeah. So, so growth is really slow, and you don't necessarily feel yourself getting better off year by year. And I think that lies at the root of a lot of the political discontents that you can uh, see are, are palpable now in the United States and in other countries, too. They have very much the same problem. Was what made the post-World you know, World War II war boom possible? Was it the hole that we had dug, uh, you know, giving everything and all of our resources to this war? Or what, what made it possible? Well, people normally associate the post-war boom with Reconstruction, but that's not actually the case. What made the, our economy and the world economy grow so quickly in the post-war world was that there was remarkable productivity growth. Productivity growth is, is kind of a complicated concept, sounds very academic, but you can think of it basically as the average that a person produces in an hour of work. That's sort of a measure of productivity. And uh, after the war, there were a lot of things that could be done by governments uh, and by the private sector that raised productivity very, very quickly. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, we had millions upon millions of people working in very low productivity agricultural jobs uh, after the war. In the United States, people don't remember this, in the United States, we had three million mules on farms at the end of World War II. <laughs> there were a lot of people out there doing very low productivity work. We were able to take that labor and move it into uh, other sectors, especially manufacturing. So somebody who had been plowing a field behind a mule was suddenly tending a very expensive machine. Enormous productivity gains from that sort of thing. Right. We built the interstate highway system. Uh, the interstate highway system made it possible for businesses to ship goods longer distances. It made it possible for workers to uh, commute longer distances to find better jobs. So we had better functioning uh, product markets, labor markets. There were a lot of economic gains from that. And we had very, very rapid increases in education levels after the war. Uh, the GI Bill helped. We spent very heavily on building up our colleges and universities after the war. And so the average education level in the United States rose very quickly. Uh, all of those things brought us very, very strong productivity growth for a prolonged period. The problem is that once you've picked this low-hanging fruit, you've picked it. You can't do it again. So, yes, we can now go back and build a new exit on the interstate, but that's not going to have the same effect on productivity as building the interstate in the first place. That's true. So that's sort of where we are. So then um, when we hear – I mean, again, if President Trump keeps his word and can get all of these jobs back to middle America, it, it's not necessarily going to increase productivity growth. It will bring more revenues in, but um, it won't necessarily increase the growth. We, I guess, need some other kind of transcendent innovation. Well, I think that's right. Productivity growth can can come in a couple of ways. One is that the government can certainly help by making investments in education, in transportation, in uh, R and D. Um, the, you know, those are, are positive things. Uh, the the difficulty with that, from a political point of view, is that the payoff is very uncertain. We know right now. 
that if we spend money on research and development, in the long run, it's very likely to be positive for productivity growth. Is that going to happen during the term of anyone who's now in the U.S. government? Um, we don't know. We yeah. really don't have any idea how quick the payoff is. Uh, we also have uh, productivity growth coming out of the private sector, and and that's really the key. You know, uh, you have new technologies, and and people tend to associate growth and and productivity with new technology, but it's really not the technology that matters. It's how private companies take the technology and use it to change the way they're doing business. Hmm. Those things happen unexpectedly. Uh, you know, we got a boost in productivity in the late 1990s. Why? Well, research uh, and development that had gone on 30 and 40 years earlier into communications and uh, information processing came together, and we had the Internet boom. Okay. Right. This was not because of investments that we made in the 1990s. This was because of investments we'd made in the 1950s and 1960s. And finally, pieces had come together and businesses started figuring out how to uh, take this technology and use it to advantage. So these things happen quite unexpectedly and they don't fit political timetables. Interesting. And I mean, I guess this this goes back to because we hear it a lot kind of in within the talking head world. Uh, trickle down economics, Reaganomics. You know, Reagan had a had a view, a vision of how we're going to do it. Uh, get the money back, I guess, into the into the business owners, and then those, and they'll create profits with it, and it'll trickle down. Many argue that didn't work. The other idea of government creating, you know, better, stronger educational systems. We're promised a lot of different things. D- do you sense that it's something that really? Our, our governing bodies can do much about, or as, as you're saying, is it more about the businesses creating innovation? Well, here's the story in my book, An Extraordinary Time. Uh, and, and this is a very international book because we had much the same development in many other countries. We had this rapid productivity growth uh, after the war in, uh, within a growing welfare state. People were generally quite happy with that. At the end of 1973, economic growth started to slow down very rapidly because of poor productivity growth. And all of a sudden, this social liberal welfare state model seemed to be unable to deliver the goods anymore. So people turned to other models. Some countries tried what we would call conservative economic models, Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany, models that said, okay, you cut taxes, you try to reduce regulations. Uh, and uh, you, you, you provide uh, some kind of uh, incentives for, for the private sector, you shrink government. Well, those models didn't increase uh, productivity growth at all. They, they did not work for that purpose. You had an attempt in France, people forget this now, to have a more traditionally socialist government to deal with poor productivity growth. That was a disaster. Mm. Uh, that didn't work either. So it's, it's not like people haven't tried different things. We've had different models used in, in different countries. And, and the bottom line is that in the short term, government really can't do much about productivity growth. There, there are no buttons, no levers. There's nothing that somebody in Washington can do to say, make the economy grow faster. Uh, we like to think that the government has control over things like this, and it doesn't. And, and interestingly, um, yet we, we even hear it in the rhetoric of this week, you know, regulation, regulatory management. If we could just cut back on a lot of the regulations, 
and the taxation issues of our corporations, it would then spur or spark some of this creativity. Um, do you do you sense those avenues have any leverage to to create productivity increase? We certainly tried that in the 1980s, for example, and uh, people are surprised when they hear this, but of the lower marginal tax rates in the 1980s under President Reagan uh, did not increase productivity. Productivity was not better during the Reagan years than it had been in the earlier years. Uh, so the, the rate of productivity growth did not pick up because of that. It's not clear that uh, marginal tax rates are particularly important in increasing productivity. Uh, some of the strongest productivity growth that we had in the United States was back in the 50s when we had very, very high tax rates, far higher than today. Uh, as for regulations, there are probably some regulations that stand in the way of productivity growth. There may well be some regulations that actually encourage productivity growth. Mm. And uh, what uh, the, the putting this out as a general proposition, fewer regulations will bring us higher productivity. Uh, I don't think that stands up. Right. Right. You know, uh, it's just it's fascinating, Mark. And I, I think it it may bring us to a space where we need to rethink our expectation. A lot of this sounds like um, let's take a break. Come back. Mark Levison is joining us. He is the author of The Golden Age, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post, uh, uh, the End of the Post-War Boom and a Return of the Ordinary Economy. He is um, he is an economist and uh, formerly finance and economics editor of The Economist magazine in London. He's teaching us that maybe it's not our political leaders that are going to create this boon again. And uh, what what maybe we need to be doing to um, either manage our expectation or look toward what might be the next uh, the next generator, the next synergy creating moment. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Mark Levinson. He is the author of the book An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War, Post-War Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. And he's here to walk us through what an extraordinary time we had, basically, I guess, from about the 50s to the 80s, early 80s, late 70s. Um, but those times don't necessarily mark what's normal. And, Mark, walk us through... Uh, you don't want this to be hopeless, right? I mean, the economy is still rolling along one and a half. Uh, hopefully, if we could get it to two percent, we we probably ought to be happy with that. Sure, I, and and I'm definitely not hopeless. Um, I, you know, the economy is by no means shrinking. Uh, people's incomes in general are rising. Uh, they're not rising at the pace that we would like them to rise. Right. I think the the issue here is really not that that uh, people are sinking. It's that we're not, we don't see ourselves uh, getting better off year to year. We're not confident that our children are going to be a whole lot better off than we are. And, and that's really a, a different issue. I think we've really got a case where uh, expectations have outrun the possibilities. And, and you know, this is a problem for politicians, certainly. Uh, now, let, let me make uh, an important distinction here. Uh, in the short term, 
say out over the next year, year and a half, the government has a lot of ability to affect the rate of economic growth. Okay, if if we get a, a huge tax cut, if we get a big increase in government spending, uh, if we get a big cut in interest rates or something like that, uh, yeah, for a while the economy will do very nicely. Not for very long, but for a brief while. But but over the long run, uh, the economy's growth really depends on productivity growth, and that's where the government really doesn't have too much control. Do do we? I mean, so I mean that's interesting because. Some of the things President Trump, uh, I mean, he was already taking credit for jobs and the stock market within the first month. Um, but these are, I guess, any changes government really makes will be will tend to be short lived. Um, and, and then it's really more up to the businesses uh, to do something. Do we do we are we innovating? Are we um, energizing the work and are we getting better and better at creating productivity growth? Or is that stagnant as well, just as a business leader? Uh, in in the business sector, productivity growth has been relatively slow, certainly compared to what it's been in the past. Uh, but again, this happens because uh, of, of uh, outside forces and, and new technology. And so w- when something new comes along, uh, it takes a while for, for businesses to adapt it. I mean, the, the famous uh, story in, in economic history – uh, is how uh, modern electricity uh, was developed uh, in the 1870s and the 1880s with Thomas Edison's work, and it found its way into U.S. factories in the 1920s. Okay, There is a time lag here. And just because there's a new innovation, businesses don't throw out all of their existing equipment. They don't close down all of their existing factories and build new ones. It takes a while to figure out how to put these sorts of innovations to good use. Yeah. It is entirely possible that there are innovations coming that will lead to uh, very large increases in productivity. Uh, let me give you an example. There is a lot of talk now about uh, virtual reality. Well, at the moment, virtual reality is, is something you play games with, okay? It's not really something that's used much in the business sector. Is it possible that virtual reality has a lot of implications for business? Is it possible this technology will change the way in which business is done in some industries? I suppose so. If that happens, it could have a very significant impact and, and speed up productivity growth and speed up our economic growth. Mm. Or, or take a look at something like artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence is, is just really starting to come into use. And obviously, people have different understandings of exactly what that term means. But is it possible that uh, artificial intelligence is going to change the way in which a lot of companies do business? Will it let them produce uh, products and services more efficiently? That's entirely possible. Hmm. Uh, If that happens, then we could get a burst of productivity growth. So I don't mean to be uh, pessimistic here. I'm I'm really not pessimistic at all. Uh, But I am uh, convinced that governments overpromise here because when this is going to happen, how this is going to happen, is not something governments really control. It's, uh, productivity growth is mainly the result of these changes made in the private sector on an unpredictable schedule. Hmm. And you could even, I mean, we, we always hear about uh, the education system in China, and so and for so many of them in China, they're so much further ahead of us in STEM and other uh, areas. And I think, I wonder if, so, I mean, these things can impact us on a, on a, in a way. They're positive. They improve our, 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 our personal economic growth. But really, it sounds like what we need is our innovations, major innovations. And then I'm assuming 
the countries that are most prepared would then handle innovation and handle the innovations more effectively, more productively. Well, productivity, productivity is not a zero-sum game, okay? Just because the Chinese uh, become more productive and more skilled doesn't mean that, oh, that hurts us. Right. So I think we have to be really careful there. Uh, it's very clear that having a more educated workforce is very important to productivity growth. I think that there's really no debate about that. Yeah. Uh, the, the question comes up again in a political context. Uh, if we spend an extra $10 on education today, when do we feel a productivity bang? And that's a question we can't answer. Hmm. Okay, that, That's where you get into this uh, uncertainty about what government can do and about uh, the, the limits of government involvement here, because there's really no way in which well, we can truthfully tell people that, hey, if we increase this spending today, it's going to do something for us tomorrow. Uh, it may do something for us in the longer run, and that something is probably positive. But when you're a politician running for election every two years or six years or, or whenever it is, that's not a satisfactory answer. You need something now. Yeah, and it's it also maybe this is the reason why politicians have such a bad reputation, such low levels of uh, trust, and in, in our politicians is because they they do make these promises that they really can't do much about, really. Well, voters want that. Okay, yeah. Voters obviously want faster economic growth. But, but um, you know, my argument here is really there's just a limit to what government can deliver. We had a great run in the quarter century after the war. You know, we, people moved out of uh, uh, very uh, small and, and, and cramped uh, and uncomfortable urban apartments to nice houses in the suburbs, Okay. Uh, they got themselves cars. Uh, they got themselves washing machines. Uh, living standards rose really rapidly. And and that really underpinned a, a lot of the uh, social and, and uh, political developments in the post-war period. Uh, but uh, can we repeat that? You know, I don't think that's something we can order up. And and one of the, the challenges here is that this is really not a partisan issue. Right. Okay? We have had politicians from both parties in the United States and from all parties around the world insisting that if you only follow their plan, uh, you'll have faster economic growth. Uh, I think we just don't have much of a track record suggesting that that's true. What do you sense we should do as just Joe Blow, the average, uh, you know, the average person maybe goes to college, gets gets an education, what what do I do, I guess, to manage my expectation and um, just, I guess, see that the the 50s to the 80s was a pretty extraordinary time and do the best with what I can today? What's what's my responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the first thing that we see is that uh, we're probably not going to be looking at really rapid wage increases for a while. Wage increases in general are, are tied to productivity. They don't always track it year by year. But if productivity is not growing very rapidly, then wages over time are likely not to grow very rapidly. So I think that that's one issue that you need to think of in planning your own economic future. Uh, I, I think that it's it's very clear that we continue to have a big wage premium for training and education. Uh, and so just on a personal level, uh, I think one needs to prepare oneself for that reality. Uh, there are plenty of people out there who will tell you that they don't like math, they're not comfortable working with computers, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, you know, these are the sorts of skills that uh, employers expect, and they're important skills these days in, in raising productivity within businesses, and you have to be prepared to do it. And and again, um, I guess just managing the, the, the benefit, the blessing. I mean, I grew up with uh, Depression-era grandparents that would look at me switching jobs a lot, and they, they couldn't believe... I would do that. Like, no, 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 Matt. You just get a job and you just hang on to it and you ride the wave. And um, so, I mean, just even generationally, how we look at our jobs, uh, it's different. And maybe we need to look at them as more about we've got to do everything we can to be more productive personally, grow our income because of the wage premium, get what we can out of it instead of expecting our government or our leaders to, to flip the switch. Well, I think there's something to that. I think there is a challenge here for the private sector. You know, a lot of firms in in the private sector, as as I'm sure your listeners know well, have gone to making greater use of short-term labor or contingent labor. We'll hire you for the job as a contractor, and then you're gone again. And and firms do that for for short-term financial reasons, obviously. But when you hire people like that, uh, they're not necessarily committed to coming up with ideas that are going to make the firm better off. Right. They're not going to develop new ideas to improve the way that your company does business because they're not going to be around six months from now. So I think businesses really need to rethink their relationship to uh, their employees in that sense. If you want people to come up with the ideas and innovations that that um, are important to productivity growth, then you have to give them, the people who do that reason to want to do that for you. Great insight, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you. And, and the book, again, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War War Boom and a Return of the Ordinary Economy. Insights, folks. Uh, we can hope and, and pray and expect a lot from our government leaders. But honestly, we also need you know groundbreaking innovation to, to help us uh, continue such a boon. And, and maybe it's more important that we just start recognizing what we can do. Get an education, work hard, do what you can to expand your ability to, to make money in a, in a good, normal economy, growing one and a half to 2% annually. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. McKenna Baus will be joining us. A little mind bender for us. Teenagers, are they replacing their smartphones? Are they replacing drugs and doing drugs with smartphones? Crazy, crazy question. Stick with us. Give it up now for the House of Bouse. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Bouse in the house. She's our uh, producer, our social media guru. And uh, today she's going to uh, be blowing our minds. Our kids using their phones instead of drugs. Is that the new drug? I personally hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you do? I, I mean, it's, it's a, I guess it's a kinder, gentler drug. I, in a way, yeah. The interesting thing is, is in the past 10 years, they've seen a steady decline in drug and alcohol use um, in teenagers. Not so much in college students, but in, in, teen, uh, in teenagers, middle schoolers, high school students, wow. etc. And that correlates with the prevalence and the rise of cell phones and you know their popularity. 
And now this isn't proven yet. It is still just in the theory stages, but it's a theory that's gaining a lot of traction right now. That's good, weird. Yeah. It's really interesting because what happens is they've looked at how – uh, people respond to having, you know, these phones and the games that you can play on them yeah. and, you know, the social media, you know, contact with other people. And the way that a lot of this research is showing is these phones act as almost a portable dopamine pump. They, you know, people feel good when they have their phone, when they're using their phone. And that is one of the reasons they don't feel that need to go sensation seek Interesting, elsewhere. yeah. Well, because I've walked... <laughs> I walked into my living room with my kids all there on their phones, and it looks like a drug house. Yeah. Because they're all just lounging around, like, in the weirdest positions ever, <laughs> um, and they're all on phones. And I didn't think of it, but they, there's a little portable dopamine pump just making them feel good. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. Um, you know, there some people are saying, well, it, you know, it could be because – of, you know, better anti-drug, you know, education um, initiatives that have gone, (laughs) you know, into effect. And there's people who hope that that's the case because they want to believe that that has been effective. Um, But there still is a lot of reason to believe it's the phones. Uh, Teenagers, you know, ages 13 to 18, average about six and a half hours of screen media time per day. That includes phones, but also video games, things like that. Um, 73% have a smartphone or access to one. Wow. I mean, it's very, very pervasive. And, you know, that's could have a lot of... Uh, yeah, totally. An, you know, correlation there. Though there's, you know, some... Uh, you know, counselors are saying, I have a harder time and I have more conflicts with students who have a social media or like phone addiction uh-huh. as opposed to students who have these drug addictions. It's true. There can be a lot more pushback when it comes to the phone. And some parents are like, well, you know, even if my kid does occasionally do drugs, it's occasional and they leave it behind the phone. They go to bed with their phone. You know, it is it's... always there. And it, you know, does. Well, I say I hope, you know, it's the case where it's like, yeah, I hope phones are the reason because, you know, that means like, hey, we've actually right. made a dent in drug use at the same time. It's something we need to be careful. And it's with. and it's a new drug. Yeah. And it's but it's a it's a highly acceptable drug and it can actually deliver other drugs. Yeah. It can deliver other forms of drugs or addictions. Is this the drug that Huey Lewis was talking about when he said he wanted a new drug? Yeah, I think this was it. He yeah. Cell phones. Smartphones. So six and a half hours of screen time per day with our kids. But and and adults are they they like dopamine pumps just as much. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you'd think college students are using phones just as much, if not more. Right. um, Along with just screen time in general with their computers. I mean, I'm always on my computer, but the drug use trends have not changed right um in those um you know older groups and i don't you know we don't know specifically why that is um but they, it's specifically having an influence they've they also um are looking at the fact that husbands wives marriages are touching less mm-hmm. less sex in marriage and they're attributing it to cell phones yeah because i mean they're again, getting in the why? way of everything yeah. you you can just have something to distract you, mm-hmm. to keep you entertained, you know, to feel connection or, you know, yeah. at least some kind of and, pseudo connection right. with people via social media. So why take the energy to, like, 
go out and talk to the people around you. Interesting. Plus, I guess it's the same effect as you're somebody that's really a, a drug addict. They're not building relationships. They're not building connections. But if you're addicted to your phone, you think you've got connections. Yeah. But if you're all sitting around, I've even seen my kids with their friends, they'll just go, instead of sitting around a room talking and, you know, throwing ideas out, what should we do? Let's do this, do this. They'll do that. But they'll also have gaps and moments where they just sit there and everyone's on their their, their device. Yeah. Though along those lines, one really cool benefit I saw of this and possibly one of the reasons drug use is down is in the past, you know, if you were at a party or you were with friends and somebody, you know, pulled out a joint. Yeah. There was a lot of social pressure to join in because that's what everybody was doing. Now phones, you know, kids are citing them as an excuse to not participate because they can just step away and play on their phone. And it's okay to be checked out if you're on your phone. And that way they're able to say, I I don't want to do drugs right now with you and not suffer the consequences. That's mind-bending. McKenna Baus is her name. Baus in the house. Thanks, McKenna. little mind-blower there. You killed us. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's the House of Bows. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. This is the show where we give you a leg up on life, helping you see and uh, be the good in the world. Of course, not an easy thing. There's so many different things we need to pay attention to. And yet we're so easily distracted. No one was given a handbook for how to get through this crazy tech age. I had no idea I would be a mayor of a city of about 40,000 people. Self-appointed? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm the mayor of Townton Abbey. Right. But you no. were... No. You were self-appointed. Well, I'm the one that... Bought and download or downloaded the app. Yes, I see. So you call it Townton Abbey, but you've also called it Town Town. Town Town. Yeah, but it's well. Town Town is where you go shopping. Okay, you just drive Town Town. Don't you get a notification every once in a while that says you won re-election? Uh, yeah, I that always confused me about the game because I never actually like filed for oh, running yeah. for any sort of yeah. office or. There's a lot of things I didn't know happen as mayor. You so, know, I don't know. But as I'm making a lot of decisions. I think if, if uh, those election results, if somebody took a closer look at those, there would be some pretty glaring questions. No. Three to five million illegal votes? No. No? Yeah, it's, I run my town really clean. Have you uh, commissioned any monuments to yourself yet? You Not yet. This is my times. house. Okay. I made a mistake yesterday because I had saved $80. Hmm. Hmm. And then I saw that I could – there's a lake. I could build a lake and I thought I, that would be cool to have a lake by my house. <laughs> so I decided to put a lake and then when I put the lake in, it looked smaller. So I put two lakes in. Oh. 
And I found out it cost me 80 bucks. So I ran through my entire reserve. Surplus. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, great. It was a little bit of a bummer. You could have thought about the people, but you thought about yourself. Well, I, I mean, I'd let the people in the lake. I'd let them come over. Do you ever make decisions and then the uh, game kicks out the sound effect where everyone's like, boo? <laughs> no, but they get, I get smiley faces or frowny faces. Okay. I did they realize, used to yell at you in the game. It was fun. I did realize something interesting the other day that um, I've built the city in a way that I am away from everybody else. My house oh, yeah. is kind of in the nice area. And my house is the only house in the nice area. You want to keep the unwashed masses mm-hmm. at bay. You yeah. don't want them close. Yeah. Come on. You realize that in the event of a zombie ap- apocalypse, people are going to storm your home. Or famine. Yeah, I'm not or worried about that. Or any disaster, because you have this nice house. Yeah, I'm not worried about that, because I could just pause it. All right. You know, I just pause the disaster. So, you know, I mean, I'm on it. I'm on it! But then your phone will get a virus. Have you Have you eliminated any more neighborhoods? Eminent domain. Have a couple. You done that yet? I, actually, I didn't have to eliminate any. A couple just abandoned their houses. Two houses okay. were abandoned because apparently they didn't have police, fire, or sewage. I. And honestly, I see, yeah. not to be rude, but I didn't want to provide it. <laughs> so I just I didn't I didn't get rid of these houses or the trailer park that I normally do. Do you ever go down the rabbit hole of improving police response time? Uh, no. Hmm. All right. No. We got a bunch of real dummies. <laughs> I'm learning a lot about politics in my SimCity simulated city management opportunity. But again, the the town's growing like crazy. And uh, really, I think really good news. Hmm. We now have I now can can build chemicals in my factories. Oh, nice! Which can help me do other things. And I'm I think we've turned a corner. Hmm. I'll probably have a cure to something soon. Or a cause of something soon. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. It's pretty good stuff. I did put in a um, a water treatment plant. That's good. I also put in a um, another sewage plant. So, so is the, the sewage treatment plant, is it near the water treatment plant? Interestingly, yeah. right next to each other. Really? Do they share common yeah, they have the materials? Same, they share the same hose. Okay. They, have, they have a common tap. That may need to be looked into. I would take a closer look at the people. I get the feeling that there is a an uprising that is stirring. You know, let me check. Pitchforks and torches. No, on I, the way. I don't know why you guys would think that. My town's about ninety eight percent happy. Yeah. Well, if they're happy, and so you know, life, life's really good. Uh, it's apparently a lot of the rest of us aren't as happy as my town um, because. Apparently, we're not as civil as we used to be. Yeah, 98% happiness, just so I'm you know. I'm just looking at your phone screen. It looked like parts of your town was on fire, but those are no, that's icons. Just, that's just all on. the money I've made last night. Gotcha. I just got to go rake Collect it all it. in, collect my taxes. Um, we have a guest coming on in a few minutes talking about the, about mastering civility. Mm. With this election, It's there's a lot of upset people, and it used to be we wouldn't bring it to work. But now people are struggling, and they bring it to work. And just like uh, sexual harassment was a big issue, now other types of harassment are on the radar of HR, and we've, we're going to have to we're going to have to talk about it to help you all, not us, of course, because we we don't ever talk about this stuff off air. Civility no. is waxing cold. Yeah, but there. Have what does been... that even mean? Waxing cold. It's just uh, cold wax. Mm. It's the worst kind that. of wax. You we have, have had emails sent out here about. 
the type of conversations yeah. you should have while which is, working. Which is why we, when we have to talk about some of these issues for the show, we talk about them in a, in a sealed room. With microphones. Yeah. It's safer that way. It's a lot safer. Her book is Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace. We'll get to that. Also, uh, a bunch of fun, crazy headlines that you're not going to want to miss. Uh, we call it empty news. And um, our own Leanna Tan will go on a little tangent about daylight savings time. But first, to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's up? The White House on Tuesday night preemptively released some details of President Trump's income taxes he paid in 2005 as MSNBC teased leaked documents ahead of an evening broadcast. Trump reported $150 million in income, paid $38 million in federal taxes, according to a statement from the White House. After apparently being warned by the network about the impending story, the White House quickly released the major numbers itself shortly before the broadcast, slamming MSNBC in the process. You know you are desperate for ratings when you are willing to violate the law to push a story about two pages of a tax return from over a decade ago, the statement read. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of harsh. Um, and the findings from the tax documents were basically that Trump paid his taxes. He paid his taxes 11 years ago, and he paid a really good rate, like overall 30%, like, 26%. But the, the people are hanging on the – there's a, there's two types of taxes he paid. Yeah. One was a federal, normal federal tax, and then there's this other alternative adjusted tax where he paid a ton of money. Mm-hmm. But his normal federal was only 4%. Right. No, but that was like five million bucks, whereas the other tax he paid thirty eight million dollars. So yeah. whatever. He paid his taxes. Yeah, he paid forty two million he out of hundred and something. He, he didn't break any laws. They teased something that was very underwhelming. Really? But maybe they got people to watch. Who knows? Come on. Representative Steve King of Iowa continued his, his totally not racist media blitz about his comments against multicultural America by telling a local radio station that he predicts minorities will fight amongst each other before they ever outnumber the white population in America. Oh, my heavens. Claiming that critics of his recent comments about multiculturalism are simply celebrating the idea of a white minority in America. (sighs) Elected official from Iowa. Texans who uh, live in the path of President Trump's proposed border wall with Mexico have received the first letters called the Declaration of Taking from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. An official declaration of taking. Declaration of taking. One of the notices received by Yvette Salinas offers her family $2,900 for 1.2 acres near the Rio Grande River. Even if her family does not accept the federal government offer, their offer, their land can still be seized through eminent domain. It is scary when you read it, Salinas says. You feel like you have to sign. Her family has owned the uh, entirety of their 16-acre property for at least five generations. Yeah. But they're going to take this 1.2 acre, just aim in a domain. This take is ours. It. We've got a wall. Hmm. So now the wall is impacting people on this side of the border. Yes. Huh. There's a national park in the way, so there's all there's kinds of things. Course. There's a golf course. There's golf course. It's going to ruin golfing. Okay. So we'll see how that works. And Manny Ramirez. Do you know who Manny Ramirez is? Uh, baseball player. He used to play for the, Bo- right. the Boston Red Sox. Had crazy curly hair. Kind of controversial guy. Played for the Dodgers for a stint. Did he now? Look he's, at who just popped he, in. Uh, Dodger boy. sat a spell with them. Yeah. Well, he's now retired from Major League Baseball. Yeah. But he signed a contract with Japanese baseball. Hold it. He, why? He wants to keep playing. Well, but why didn't he just keep playing here? Because he's not good enough to play here. He's getting older. He's slowing down, but you can go on the retirement circuit, still make some more money. Yeah. They're cracking down on the juice a little more, so he's, yeah. 
What juice? He might have some chemical assistance. He's just, just you know, maybe. Hey, who doesn't now? Who doesn't nowadays? But the interesting thing is his contract that he signed what? with the Kochi Island Fighting Dogs. That's the name of the team. Kochi Island? Yes. Okay. Oh, I was like, okay, yeah. Is that it's a team Japanese. on Coney Island? No. This is in Japan. It's a real city. It's a real city. Wow. Kochi Island, yeah. Um, so the, the people have pulled out some of the more weird or fun details from his contract. Okay. One, unlimited sushi. Oh, wow. That is a good benefit. He gets unlimited sushi. That is cool. Two, practices are apparently optional, which is kind of what he wanted when he was playing in Major League Baseball. He just wanted to show up and just be the designated hitter and just hit home runs. That's he in, didn't want to do the rest of the work. Jeff's got that in his contract. Yeah. And also, apparently in Japan, the, the practices are quite rigorous, and he might find them a little bit taxing. Really? Because he doesn't want to be tied down to things. So yeah, for practice if he needs to, he'll yeah. show up and just be well, the promotional vehicle that he is. Do you want me to be on my game or do you want me to practice? Yeah. By the way, Matt just strongly implied that when I'm up at the plate, I knock it out of the park every time. Not what I thought he meant, but okay, you can take it that way. He'll have use of a Mercedes with a team employee to drive him around at all times. This is a great contract. He's staying in a hotel suite that costs 80,000 yen a night. Wow. But 80,000 yen is like $700. That's great, so though. Still, still, it's still a good I bet he gets t- a robe. Right. And and he'll be on his jersey. It'll say Manny, not Ramirez. Oh, he see? goes by his first name. That is awesome. Does he actually get any money as part of this contract, There's though? money involved, okay. too. But yeah. You know what he should have done? Um, I don't know if you saw this. It's more about sushi. Um, Free sushi. Raw meat cakes are birthday trend in Japan. He's got to make sure if he's there for his birthday, he needs a, a meat cake. A meat cake. So if regular fondant icing birthday cakes are no longer the hit for uh, you know your celebratory spot, then you may want to pop over, pop over to Japan because they're proving the birthday cakes don't have to come with a lot of sugar. Instead, they come draped in slices of beef and bacon. Mm. Mm. They're called meat cakes. Jeff calls them beef cakes. Right. Isn't that right, Jeff? Apparently it is now. Well, you didn't. I thought you said that yesterday that you were just celebrating with um, a birthday beef cake. He said, I like me some beef cakes. (laughs) These cakes are made from luxury cuts of raw steak, pork, fish, piled up and turned into all kinds of beautiful shapes. Yeah. So, you know, I I always get frustrated. I go to a restaurant. Mm -hmm. They bring out the food. Not necessarily as much food as I would have liked, but yeah. man, they tried to make it look pretty. <laughs> yeah, and then you end up paying for them playing with your food. Essentially, yeah, they just make it. I'm like, I'd rather you like bring me some food. But the, but are are these substantial? Did you see these? Yes, they are. These are meaty. These are beefy. Uh, the cakes are then taken apart and cooked in front of your party at the table. Right. So then they cook the meat for you, I guess, and then serve everyone. Kind of a Benihana thing. It's kind of neat. This is, I think, exciting stuff. So maybe Manny needs to make sure he gets a meat cake. I mean, you might want to send him a note. Okay. I'll uh, contact his agent, see if he gets a meat cake. Who needs more cake when you can have a meat cake? That's the key. Hey, uh, you know, Donald Trump has, has only been in the White House for about two months now, and yet already the filmmakers of the hit film My Big Fat Greek Wedding have released a trailer for their new film, about a billionaire president. Check it out. This summer, only in theaters. A new president falls out of love with a non-Republican health care plan. The gains that we've made are there. 
20 million people have health insurance that didn't have it before. And struggles to get support for his new plan. The House plan will expand choice, lower costs, and ensure health care access to all. We're negotiating with everybody. While he comes to terms with his roots. Stop and take a moment to imagine how you would feel if you just met a guy named Donald Trump. And his political identity. It's a big, fat, beautiful negotiation. My big, fat, beautiful negotiation. His problems are nothing a little Windex can't cure. Tomorrow is the start of the NCAA basketball tournament, and if you work, you might have a bracket challenge with some coworkers. March Madness, for some, can be dreaded. Coworkers might belittle others for their lack of basketball knowledge. Whatever the activity, bullying and uncivility, incivility in the workplace is common problem. So how do we address that issue? Joining us today is author Christine Porath to talk about her book, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for Workplace. Christine, thank you so much for your time being with us. Thanks for having me. So incivility, have you noticed a trend? Is it, is it, are we becoming less civil with each other since uh, the you know since the the last eighteen months since Trump has been you know throwing out some pretty big uh, some pretty big language. Yeah, over the last couple decades, I've seen an increase in incivility, and that's continued in the last eighteen months. Uh, so sadly, I think that you know people role model leaders and things like that. And so you know, my sense is for a variety of reasons, we'll continue to see. Uh, increase in in civility in the workplace. Well, what do you think's driving it? Uh, If it's been going on for decades, what's what's the cause of the incivility? Well, the number one reason people say they're uncivil is because they're overworked or feeling stressed. So stress is, I think, for a number of reasons, whether that's, um, you know, people are being asked to do more with less. And so I think just because of the competitiveness of the economy, um, dual careers, you know, our personal stress as well. Uh, that's the number one reason. But also, I think technology adds to it because there's a lot of uh, e-incivility right. out there. Uh, and I think that it's tough because you don't have the nonverbals, you don't have the tone. So it's easy to misunderstand things. People don't necessarily intend to be uncivil, but things are taken that way. And combined with that, you have more diversity than ever in, you know, in the workplace. And so Different cultures have different norms, and so it's tougher to get that right, especially electronically. Oh, yeah. I I think that, you know, those are some of the main reasons why we see more of it. Um, The good news is leaders seem to be more aware of it, so hopefully, you know, we're going to be managing for it um, and set better norms for more civility. Do how do you de, um, define incivility? What what would that look like, and how would one know if if they if they have a problem with it? Well, it's tricky because it's subjective, so it's all in the eyes of the beholder. So you know, we usually ask people, do they feel like they were disrespected, treated rudely, or insensitively? But you know, I have a test of it, and so there's. <laughs> A variety of items online where you can see, you know, how uncivil are you, how much are you experiencing it. But things like, did you feel belittled? Do you feel demeaned? Uh, did someone withhold information? Um, did you feel like you were put down? Um, did people not give credit for work that you had done? Mm. <laughs> things like that. So it takes a variety of forms. 
Um, but the main thing is, do people feel like they were disrespected in some way? Because that's when you see the consequences. So I think that's the most important thing, it's just how people feel about it. Yeah. And in in a weird way, you know, it used to be we would talk and the big push was, you know, we've got to tell people about sexual um, harassment, sexual abuse, watching our language, what we say in the office. But now it's almost kind of morphed not to just sexual harassment, but really um, it could be political talk. It could be um, any kind of discourse now that is uncivil. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's been a real fraction since the election. And so I think we see that there's at least more awkwardness, if not anything else, you know, around some of the discussions. So. I think you're right. You know, sadly, we're seeing more of this, and um, I, I think we're only going to see an increase unless leaders are actively managing uh, to set better norms for how people treat each other and to hold people accountable when they they do, you know, treat people pretty poorly. Yeah. What What have you seen um, the the cost be to companies, to individuals? What What What's happening as a repercussion with all of this? Well, there are really strong consequences in terms of performance. So it absolutely hits the bottom line of companies. Uh, you know, over two-thirds of people report that they don't work as hard. Uh, you have people um, worrying, 80% worrying about the interaction afterwards. You have 12% of people that apparently leave the job or the organization because of one of these incidents, although they don't necessarily report it. So those are big reasons that really cut into, you know, the um, revenues of organizations. But in experiments, what I found is it really pulls people off track. So even if people aren't trying to get even, you know, even if they're just trying to soldier on, it, it they can't focus nearly as well, and that really hurts their performance. Mm. Um, so and their creativity. Uh, so it, it hurts companies in a variety of ways. Basically, you aren't getting the most out of your workers. Um, workers are far less likely to help. So in experiments, they're three times less likely to help others and over 50% willing to share their resources. So you just see people holding back in a variety of ways. Wow. We we do talk a lot about on the show engagement, employee engagement, and um how that seems to be dropping around the country. Uh, do, do you think there's a correlation between somebody being engaged in their workplace, loving their work, enjoying their work, and having people around them that won't share resources, that won't give credit, that don't, and that are being uncivil? Absolutely. So I see direct correlations in my own research. I also, when I've asked a sample of 20,000 primarily leaders and middle-level managers about their um, leaders' behaviors, I see a direct relationship with how engaged they are and how much respect they get from their leader. So the more respect they feel that they get from their leader, the far more engaged they are. So I think that there's a lot of rationale for if we want to improve engagement, let's increase the civility in organizations. Totally. And in an interesting way, that looks like it's it's top down. Um, we really, as leaders, we need to be see civility as me making sure I'm respecting, listening, paying attention, acknowledging people's success, handing out resources, being accessible, it sounds like, being open? Absolutely. So another reason that people say they're uncivil, the second most cited reason is because my leaders are. 
So <laughs> we see a huge role modeling effect. So people look up, and that's how they tend to you know, behave. Uh, so I think it would have a huge impact if leaders kind of set a tone and then role model the behavior. That's where we see the biggest wins. Well, and we see it's interesting um, because you can be political and civil, but it almost seems like more and more today we see we see almost everybody becoming more political. Uh, corporations and corporate leaders are becoming, it seems like, more politically active than they used to be. You know, Hollywood is politically active. Uh, even um, companies that just here in Utah, we had a situation where they didn't like some of the decisions the state of Utah were making about um, – you know, uh, government lands and uh, and all these different um, recreational lands, and and so and then even companies were saying, "Okay, great, we're not going to bring our trade show here." Is is there a way to walk the fine line and and be political as a company or as a leader and still uh, maintain civility inside the company, or is it now yeah. you just got to go with the company that has your your values? No, I think that, you know, everyone can have personal beliefs. It's how you um, force or don't force them on others, I think. So being very open, being very inclusive. I mean, I think that's the real goal here uh, is to really try to bring people together. Because what I've seen, and I collected some data just a couple of weeks ago on this, is real fractures in organizations. So, you know, you mentioned kind of the effect of even political leaders on the workplace and, 62% of the people I polled said political leaders' incivility had made them feel disrespected, and well over half claimed that it distracted them from their work. Hmm. So we are we are seeing an effect of, you know, the politics outside of the workplace really infiltrating the workplace in negative ways with yeah. engagement and focus and performance, things like that. So I think it's actually, I've heard really and seen really great examples in action of top leaders bringing their troops together and kind of acknowledging this. It's kind of the elephant in the room. Yeah. So, you know, despite what how you might feel, we all need to be very respectful and very inclusive. So um, the great examples of, I think, leaders being proactive and addressing it because it's kind of um, getting in the way, it seems like, of right. people's productivity in the workplace today. Well, and... If I can if I can sit there and listen to you, you know, spew your views that I don't agree with, because uh, I, I go into corporations and corporate America and teach skills about how to manage our communication more effectively. And it, it's it's really a skill that if I can do it with somebody I disagree with, then I can also do it in a negotiation for the business. And I can also do it in negotiating my salary and and I can learn to have a different opinion than you and still have a healthy, effective conversation. It's a skill that that we all need to learn, it sounds like. Absolutely. And, you know, companies that have provided those kind of skills have seen a real return. So I think it's a very positive investment yeah. for organizations to make. Uh, and I think you're right. Like, whether that is, you know, about negotiating, whether it's about being able to have a critical conversation, whether it's about being able to give and receive feedback, that's great. Even things like stress management are helpful. So yeah, right. There's a variety of different training programs that really seem to make a difference. And so picking one that seems most appropriate to your workforce, I think, is is a good place to start. 
it, it, it also seems like it used to be in corporate America that we we kind of believed that people would keep personal things personal and keep work things work things, and they never the two the twain should meet. But now it almost seems like we're we've either come to the realization you can't necessarily bifurcate your life that way, and it seems like some people are unwilling to keep. You know, I mean, there were the, there were the untouchable topics you just never brought up. Grandma taught me, uh, right. you know, politics, religion, sex, and your income. And and it sounds like a lot of these are just the water cooler talk. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was it's hard to get away from it too with all the media coverage. So I think people are distracted with that. It's like we're getting, you know, just overwhelmed with the information and examples that are out there. And so I think, sadly, it's just reinforcing some of this. And so it's like we can't um, move on or move forward <laughs> very yeah. productively and collaboratively. That's so good. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Christine Porath. She is a professor, associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. And she's a consultant working with uh, leading organizations to help them create thriving workplaces Uh, Today she's talking to us about her book, Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace. We'll take a break, come back, give you some insights, some solutions for what you can do to pick up your, uh, your civility game. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about civility. Do you consider yourself to be uh, a, a pretty healthy coworker, somebody that uh, keeps it safe for others? Do you take some of your uh, positions and just keep them to yourself? Or do you just have to tell everybody what you think? And do you do so aggressively, even to the exclusion of others? Joining us uh, to talk about civility and her book, Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace, is Christine Porath. She is an associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University and is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, has written articles for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and McKinsey Quarterly. We appreciate you for being with us again. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Is um, give us give us some ideas for what we can do, just as average citizens, uh, coworkers, to make sure we're not stepping on everyone else's toe, toes and uh, and creating an unsafe uh, workplace. Well, in addition to being just more mindful of like all our small interactions with people and thinking about if you're tempted, you know, who do you want to be in the moment. But I think the main thing is gathering feedback from others because most people, this stems from a lack of self-awareness. You know, we don't set out to be jerks, but people might perceive us to be that way. So, you know, whether you ask coworkers, teammates, um, people outside of the workplace, friends and family for, you know, what are some things that you do really well and, and you should keep doing and what are a few things that you might change to be more effective and influential and you know, really try to strive for some specific suggestions. You know, people maybe say that you interrupt, things like that, you know, that you can work on. Um, and if you have resources, it's really valuable to work with a coach or someone that can gather some of this feedback for you. Um, but, you know, teammates can serve 
as coaches, too, to help you out with this. Uh, organizations that collect 360 feedback, that's great because you're getting you know, kind of anonymous, um, typically more direct feedback about things that you can change. The other thing is just to keep reflect on what you're doing. You know, are there trends that you see? Like I notice that I'm a morning person and I'm far shorter with people. And, yeah. You know, may not write as uh, civil emails in late afternoon. You know, that's where my patience is tested. And so, you know, I may draft those emails around that time or I may avoid really tough conversations that, that may, you know, become uncivil for those hours of the day, for example. <laughs> yeah. um, I, also, I also tend to be really mindful of the fact because I know that I'd like to think that I'm fairly civil, but when I'm stressed, I know that, you know, I'm just not in a good position. And so I, you know, kind of monitor that. If I'm stressed out, again, those are not times to be hitting the send button for me, <laughs> you know. So the, paying attention, I think, to, you know, how you feel during even points of the day or certain times are, are useful. And then really making an effort to take care of yourself. As obvious as that sounds, you know, if you're not sleeping well, it's really hard <laughs> to interact well with others. You know, if you're really, they call it hangry, but hungry and things like that, you know, you're probably not going to be as effective with others. Um, if you, Exercise is a great thing to kind of work out negative emotions or, you know, stress, things like that. It kind of primes you to be at your best interacting with others. So, you know, even taking care of yourself in those ways helps prime you to be more effective with others. And I I look at it, people got to realize that they could lose their job. I mean, this is – their income is on the line um, because if you can't work with other people, you're, you become a detriment. Absolutely. And I think that companies that take that into account are far more effective and are more likely to be on the best places to work and see better returns on investments and things like that. So I think that there's a direct correlation with – you know, people's cultures, organizations' cultures, and um, how they're doing financially even. Yeah. Do you, and do you see a correlation with, um, I mean, I, I guess because civility can go, you know, from me personally being able to do it to doing it at my workplace to then doing it as a leader with my people. Do these Do these skills, do these trends naturally go with me? to just being able to do it with my neighbor, to, to being able to treat people effectively at the store? I mean, does it yeah. translate? I think so. I mean, Riot Games uh, is an organization that has actually tracked some of this, that all of their employees have online handles. You know, they're responsible for the most uh, popular online game, League of Legends. And what they found is the people that are uncivil, you know, and kind of behave badly online are the ones that they've had problems with and, you know, have complaints about and things like that. So the organizations that have tracked kind of online behavior and um, in the workplace behavior have seen real correlations. Um, and my sense is, is that that is the case. Uh, so what's I think interesting lately has been that some of your personal online, you know, Twitter comments, for example, have prompted people to get fired. You know, that 
that they, <laughs> whether or not they're doing that in the workplace, if something, you know, catches wind online that someone did something really um, damaging to the reputation of the company, because the company is often cited, you know, then yeah. that person loses their job. So I think it's important nowadays with all of the online behavior that you really need to be aware of your actions, whether they're in the workplace or outside of the workplace, they may carry weight, you know, for your career. And so it's not worth being that person. Mm. And it's really, I guess we, we used to think we were so safe and protected in that social media coverage that we could be anything we, you know, wanted to be, say anything we want to say, but you're still the same person. And nowadays this stuff's very trackable. It is. And, you know, whether it's um, particular groups or celebrities or sports folks that are pointing back to so-and-so from X company, you know, is it said this, and then it gets traction and the company, I think, in some cases recently, has felt like they needed to take action. Mm. Well, yeah. And, and there's a lot of backlash with the country, with a country that's split 50-50 one bad comment and you're going to hear backlash from the other 50% that are going to look to have you lose your job. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are real reputation issues and costs with respect to this too. And especially when leaders do something like this, whether it's in the workplace or outside of the workplace, but, you know, um, people make leaders pay for their actions. Often they don't necessarily do anything in response, you know, nothing in your face. Certainly they want to be savvy about it, but, when that leader needs their help, for example, they're not going to give it. Mm. You know, when push comes to shove, they don't want to work for that person. And so, you know, I think we see um, costs that are more hidden yeah. with respect to how you behave and treat people. Yeah, there's that quote, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. That's you know? great. And and we really, that happens. If I don't trust my boss because of, and it may not even be things he said about me that were uncivil, but it could be just a, a biased comment about someone else, but that sticks with me. And then I don't have the loyalty. I don't want to follow them. They're not my leader. Exactly. So, you know, some of the costs that we talked about, like the performance and less creative and less helpful, those hold true for just witnessing this kind of behavior and civility. So, it's really much more about two people <laughs> disagreeing or, you know, one belittling the other. It, it's widespread, like you said. So the effects um, touch a lot more people. And even if people don't see it, you know, if they hear about it, like you, you mentioned, then um, you know, people really take it out on others and are far less likely to follow them and so forth. Hmm. Should Should I... If somebody's being uncivil and and rude, demeaning, what's my responsibility there? And and how far do I go and how far do I go out on the limb in that moment? I think it really depends. And the, probably the biggest thing it depends on is uh, what's the power difference. Yeah. So if it's, you know, your boss, you're probably not going to, you may not, depending on how close you are to him or her, but probably aren't going to say something immediately or calling out, call them out on it. I was talking to a leader yesterday who said that she is able to do this in the moment with a leader because they have a close relationship. So, you know, she could say something directly about, you know, wait a second, you know, that just made me feel like X, you know, did you realize, did you mean that? But for the most part, most people don't have that. And so, you know, for career reasons, 
I would say that you either try to re- provide that feedback, whether it's through a more anonymous channel. You could, if there's a pattern of it, you could go to HR to get help about that if you feel protected. But sadly, most people don't feel comfortable of giving what would be probably the best thing to do, which is the direct, immediate feedback. Yeah. But letting people know so that, you know, they can ideally change it. Um, but it, most people, about two-thirds of the time, it comes from people of higher status. And so, you know, we're fearful. Um, and we don't necessarily have a lot of hope that our organization is going to do something about it. So, you know, ideally, if teams, for example, have participated in creating norms for the organization, like who do we want to be, how are we going to treat each other, then people are much more apt to call each other out on this, um, even in playful ways, but in ways that help hold one another accountable. Mm. I worked with a, a law firm that actually created, you know, they called it the Ten Commandments, but they had come up with ten norms that the whole office was responsible for coming up with and agreeing to. And then it was far more comfortable for, you know, a paralegal or an administrative assistant to call a partner out on something that they did that was really out of line. Um, but without those norms that are you know, prominently displayed in our lobby and have become really, you know, part of the foundation of their values, um, it's uh, more difficult for people to report this kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then there's that character moment, if you're going to do it or not, right then, right then. Are we going to do it? Yeah. It's pretty intense. I think it, it really, what happens then is people hold on to this. And there's where you see the cognitive losses really add up because you replay it in your mind 50 times. Did that just happen? Was it that bad? Was it worse than what I thought? You know, what will happen right. to me if I report it? Who should I talk to? You know, all of these things. And so that's where we see the long-term costs add up as far as just how people, how distracting it is to people. Mm. What would you say as we wrap up, what is the one thing that we could all do today uh, that would that would have the greatest impact on civility in our lives, um, and and it's it's fairly doable. Just this one thing. I would say listening better. <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, I think being more attentive to people. Um, I think most of us are really challenged by multitasking and being on our iPhone, for example, and you know not tuning into people. So I think listening. Um, smiling is another basic one that it sounds funny almost, but it's contagious, you know, and it lifts people up and it's yeah. good for your health. So That's those it. are a couple really easy, well, not easy, but quick things that we could work on. Doable. Yeah, doable. That's great. Christine, thank you so much. Christine Porath's her name. If you go to her website, christineporath.com, you can find out more about the book Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace. Holy cow, don't we all need more civility? And uh, and we need it everywhere. We need it at home, at work, out in the community. We need it in the ballpark. We need it everywhere. So let's pick up our game there. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Uh, joining us uh, will be Leanna Tan as we discuss daylight savings time. She's got a little tangent on that. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Let's face it, folks. Daylight savings time is annoying. 
The whole spring forward or fall back thing can be confusing for some. The time change affects the amount of sleep people get, and for some it takes time to get used to this new schedule. There are some areas in the country that don't change the uh, change, and you know some that do, and it makes it difficult to figure out what uh, time in places like Arizona, what's going on, what time we need to call someone there. What are the pros and cons of daylight savings time? Producer Leanna Tan shares what she has learned. If you're wondering why you're so tired right now and don't know what hit you, I'm here to tell you. For most of the nation, this week was the beginning of daylight saving. And yes, I had this conversation with a friend the other day who insisted it was daylight saving and not daylight savings. And it turns out he was right. So now you have less sleep, show up to work late, inevitably have at least one clock in your house you'll forget to change, like the one on your oven. Not to mention... Now you have to do math every time you want to calculate the time difference when you're trying to call your friends in Hawaii or Arizona. So, what is this strange phenomenon all about anyway? I did a little research myself on this monster depriving me of my sleep and brought to you five facts you probably didn't know about daylight saving. I grew up thinking daylight saving was created to help farmers grow their crops or something. But some people say it's actually meant to help reduce electricity use in buildings. Energy.gov says in 2008, Energy Department experts studied the impact of daylight saving time on energy consumption in the U.S. and found that it saved about 0.5% in total electricity per day, which adds up to about 1.3 billion kilowatt hours a year. Wow. But other people say that it's a hoax. The New York Times came out with an article that says daylight saving might just be an excuse to get people to spend more money. More daylight means more people at the stores driving around, consuming gas, and of course, more light to play golf. The article says lobbyists from the golf industry estimated the extra month of daylight would bring in about two to four hundred million dollars to the industry. What have we been wrangled into? The reason why daylight saving seems to creep up on us all is because it happens in the wee hours of the morning. So why did someone decide they'd spring this on everyone at 2 a.m. every year? Surprise! Well, according to Live Science, I guess 2 a.m. is considered to be the least disruptive time of the day. And let's just turn back the clocks without changing the date to yesterday. Well, let me tell you, no matter what time you're taking away my hour of sleep, it's disruptive. Did you know daylight saving could impair your health? So it's not all in your head. Independent.co.uk says that one hour less of sleep disturbs people's sleeping patterns and can make them more restless at night. It can also increase your risk of heart attack. A study done by Dr. Amnit Sandhu shows that on the Monday immediately after daylight saving times begins, heart attacks increase by 25%. And on the Monday after daylight saving time ends, heart attacks fall by 21%. I knew that hour of sleep was important. One good thing about daylight saving is that it helps drivers. USnews.com says people are safer drivers during daylight hours, and researchers have found that daylight savings reduces lethal car crashes and pedestrian strikes. In fact, one study said if we did daylight saving year-round, we would annually prevent about 195 motor vehicle deaths and about 171 pedestrian fatalities. I definitely think it impairs my driving, though, because I sneeze when I look at the sun. More sun means more sneezing. And that's pretty lethal when I'm driving. Time travel. I found this funny story on MSN.com that says, 
Thanks to daylight saving time, an Ohio man was arrested twice at exactly the same time. Niles Gammons was arrested for drunk driving at 1.08 a.m. when a police officer spotted him driving the wrong way down a one-way street. Later that night, the same officer arrested Gammons again after nearly backing his car into a police cruiser. The clocks returned back at 2 a.m., so the second arrest was also at 1.08 a.m. Man, if you're going to live something twice, don't let it be a police arrest. Come on. Well, there you go. Now you know a little bit more about this daylight saving thing. I don't know if it made you hate it more or less, but maybe now it's not just an annoying phenomenon that springs up on you every March. So, if you got nothing else out of this, please at least catch up on the hour of sleep so you don't die from a heart attack. And don't forget to change that oven clock. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Wednesday to you. And boy, oh boy, we're taking on a a topic that, uh, for Terry and for many that love superheroes, get your bat power ready. Apparently, Batman may not be creating a sense of community like you think. Well, part of this is... It's a trap! They found that superhero movies and culture might not be teaching your kids noble, heroic behaviors as you thought they were. Yes. I don't think those movies are teaching my kid noble and heroic behavior. Well, then why do we call them superheroes? Because they're fun. That's all I'm hoping my kid gets out of this is that it's fun, not that he's getting some moral lesson. Really? I think we're overthinking superheroes. Are we now? Are now, we now? Now, the aggressive part, yeah, because my kid starts kicking and yeah. wanting to wrestle all the time right after we watch that. And I was like, wow, is there any sort of causal effect going on here? And I pro- I, I dismissed Definitely. it. Dismissed it because there's no way. <laughs> well, for you, this has got to be devastating. What do you mean devastating? There's nobody that I know that's dedicated more time to understanding all of the comics and superheroes than you. I play video games. That they say cause people to act out in violence in society, and I don't believe those are true either. Well, you are kind of violent. No, I'm really quite docile. Jeffrey? Like a fox. Docile (laughs) like a fox. I don't think that's the quote. No, you're not. Yeah, you've controlled your outbursts. Yeah, I mean, I let the rage out in different ways. Well, let's get into the noodle and... When you do a little lightsaber fight with your child. Yeah. That's where you let it out. Eh, somewhat. And then your wife has to reprimand you. She used to be, she was concerned before until she saw that there were no bruises. And then she's like, all right, yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. Just go for it. We'll get into all that fun. Superheroes. Uh, it's, by the way, the same research came um, from, or from the same person about uh, Disney, what are they called? Disney. Princesses. Princesses. They, they they don't necessarily do what you think they're doing. They okay. might be creating issues. I don't think we have the right to say Disney on the air, by the way. Flizney. Uh, yeah, with a company that rhymes with Flizney that has a lot of princesses. <laughs> Stuff like that. We've got uh, that ahead. Uh, we'll be talking to those uh, 
those psychologists and uh, researchers. Also, of course, we'll be visiting with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation. Hello. Find out uh, the NIT game with BYU. I think it's tonight. Yes. And the University of Utah lost, which was ending that ends a dream because the goal of a lot of us would have been to see the Utes play the Cougars. Right. Now phase two tonight, BYU loses. No, no. BYU has to win tonight just to be able to show the U that they were better than them in the NIT. Didn't they play each other? Yeah. Did they? No, not this year. Did oh, they? that's right. This was the this, year they the didn't year play they can't because play. somebody pouted mm-hmm. and took an $80,000 hit because he pouted. Yeah. But has yet to pay back the full 80000 according to reports. It's an expensive pout. Yeah. Well, you know. We'll get to all that fun uh, straight ahead. Plus, also a hero story, of course, and more headlines from Empty News. But first to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas skewered his party for its three-step proposal to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act on Tuesday, calling such aspirations mythical and their chances of success non-existent. He says there is no three-step plan. That's just political talk. It's just politicians engaging in spin. The Republicans' plan consists of phase one. Have you ever heard the three-phase plan? Three-phase plan, yeah. I've heard there's a three-step, but not what the three steps are. Phase one, writing the health care legislation. They've done that. Phase two, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price making regulatory changes. He hasn't done that yet. And phase three, writing legislation to allow companies to sell insurance policies across state lines. Again, has not been written yet. Cotton said step one will get probably 51 votes in the Senate. Step two will get tied up in the courts. And step three, some mythical legislation in the future that is going to garner Democratic support and help us get over the 60-vote mark in the Senate. If we had those Democratic votes, we wouldn't need a three-step plan. Ooh. Ooh, harsh words. And this is this is a this is an insider. Ardent Trump supporter. And although also uh, from Arkansas, right. where a, a larger majority of these people are on the current Obamacare plan right. than almost any other state. So he's concerned so about he's got how this to, works. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting how he's been one of the vocal people against right. the Republican House plan. David Clay Johnson, the reporter that uh, on Tuesday night reported on the first two pages of one of President Trump's undisclosed income tax returns says he was the victim of harassment and threats overnight. Trump fans call and harass my wife and one of my children after I break a story White House has already confirmed. And then he goes, this is on Twitter, and he goes, sad, which is what the Trump does. He should be investigated for how he got this leaked information. He says it came to him in the mail. Right. Which is what President Trump calls fake news. Well, isn't that what President Trump said the Russians came to him in the mail? Right. Says, let's have an open debate, not threats, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist tweets. To be clear, folks, I don't intimidate, but call to but calls to family are out of bounds, a disturbing sign of how Trump damages civil debate. Uh, Johnson, who is a Daily Beast contributor and has covered Trump and his business dealings for more than 30 years. You can hear our interview with him that we had yeah. last September. I put it out on Twitter about 7 o'clock this morning. So check that out. Pulitzer kind of Prize winning. Yeah. He's, he knows his stuff. He went on and on and on because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. The Justice Department is expected to announce indictments Wednesday against suspects in a massive hacking attack against Yahoo, Bloomberg ya- Yahoo. Uh, News reports. Four people face indictments for their involvement in the online security breaches, which saw hundreds of millions of user accounts compromised. Three of the suspects live in Russia. A fourth resides in Canada. 
Uh, Bloomberg citing an anonymous source familiar with the situation. Uh, the Canadian uh, suspect is supposed to be picked up later today, I believe. Yeah. The Russian ones, I'm not sure if they can actually reach them. It was not immediately clear which data breaches the suspects were accused of being involved in because there's been so many that mm. Yahoo has not disclosed until recently because they're trying to be sold to uh, Yahoo. And finally, yes. a deadly cobra is on the loose in Florida. Are you serious? The search continues for the deadly cobra that escaped from an enclosure at the home of its owner in Ocala, or Ocala Florida. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Here, Commission boy. says the owner called the commission late Here, Monday boy. to let officials know that his two-foot-long uh, Sufan cobra Ooh. has escaped. The police and the fire rescue couldn't find the reptile, the commission said. Authorities have been alerted. They've uh, started alerting nearby residents. Get your pets in. <laughs> kind of hide yourself. The snake's owner has been licensed to have uh, the cobra since May 2016. He also owns a uh, gaboon viper Pardon? and an, an African bush viper. So he has two other deadly snakes. So the vipers didn't get out. The cobra The cobra did. By the way, two great cars. The Wildlife Commission requires rooms where venomous reptiles are kept to be escape-proof. Investigators are looking into whether the owner violated those yeah. regulations. Fail. Yeah. Apparently, it's pretty clear something happened because they got out. So. Boy, that's a really crazy phone call when you've got to call the police and like, okay, so – Hypothetically, what if you lose a cobra? A venomous cobra escaped from an uh, an inescapable room. Any? Could I get in trouble for that? But it's good that they alerted the public. Yeah, because when you when a cobra is on the loose, what what? It's it, it's good to have information out. The more you know, the, the less... better you are because knowing is half the battle. The other half is getting a two-foot cobra off your leg. That's just scary. I watched a video the other day of a cobra. I don't know if it was the same type of cobra. And a guy was petting it. Mm. So I'm betting he was defanged, you know. Right. But it gave me the chills. Yeah. Like when the hood pops open and they come at you. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Wow. All right, Jeff. What was that? I think he sneezed. Is that what that was? Ah, seriously, I, I will show you all, and we will put it on my Twitter feed. Man petting cobra. A baby. A baby petting a cobra. Not he, petting a cobra. Just touching it. A be, a baby grabbing a cobra by the neck. Okay, no. And taking this cobra on a, a ride that only a baby could take a cobra. Crazy. It honestly, it's so unsettling when you see it because your whole body wants to repel and pull away. Right. And this baby, because the cobra is just sitting there and the baby's just playing with it and it gets close enough and the baby just grabs it by the neck. It's cute. Cobra. Um, superheroes. Superhero yes. culture. I worry about you. Because I think this is going to change. I think your your wife's going to want you to turn off all Marvel comics, all whatever the other one, DC comics. Right. Done. You're done. No, no. more comics. She's talked about it because she sees my, my son get aggressive afterwards. Yeah. That's nah, fine because he watches I, – I think I told you the other day. He watched Kung Fu Panda and all of a sudden he's jumping off the couch going, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> <laughs> is he wearing like – do you remember when we used to have underoos? Yeah, yeah. Did no. Jeff, did you live through underoos? I remember Dunkaroos. Yeah, remember that delicious Those, snack? No, these are different. Oh. I had Green Lantern underoos. Uh-huh. That's why I love Green Lantern. And I you had could just underwear. run around in your underwear and right. you you could be a superhero. Yeah. 
It was so great. You ought to get your son some of those. I guarantee they're still out there. I'll somewhere. find them. Yeah. I was basically born into boxers. You ever have those baby boxers? No. They're called shorts. Is that is that like a dog? No, a baby like boxer? little little baby boxer underwear. Hmm. No, sounds cute though. No, yeah, well, with their chubby little legs. Hey, um, this is I a guy. I resent that comment, by the way. Well, isn't that? Yeah, I think it's okay. You grow out of it. Eventually. I I had some serious weight. I I had some self esteem problems as a baby. He was a fat baby. As a baby, and I I don't appreciate that. So you you as a baby knew you were a fat baby. I I had some eating disorders as a baby, and uh, yeah, every time I looked in the mirror, all I saw was a fat baby. Wasn't that what everyone saw? And when the cheeks were huge. Your knees had like ripples around them. And I thought nobody could love me. Yeah. It's almost as if you had no knees at the, at the time. It just sort of just a big yeah. blob of. But you leg. totally, you thinned out. You totally thinned out. Um, a 74 year old man apparently, you know, has become aggressive because of this, uh, these, these superhero culture. Really? Yeah. You're blaming it on that? Uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. He, um, he's been arrested for vandalizing Kim Kardashian books at Barnes & Noble. Like many of his fellow Americans, this 74-year-old Connecticut man dislikes Kim Kardashian and people like her. This fact emerged yesterday after Puya, I guess is his name, was arrested for destroying six copies of Selfish, which is Kardashian's book of selfies at a Barnes & Noble near his home. Seen above, Puya turned himself in on an arrest warrant, charging him with vandalism for allegedly pouring a red liquid over the books last October. Cops report that he left a lengthy typed note for Barnes & Noble stating his dislike for Kim Kardashian and people like her. People like her, which would probably be like her whole family. Yeah. I mean, it is, that's, it's bad enough that people take selfies. Yeah. But if you had to read a book of her selfies... No, there's no reading. It's just oh. pictures. You had to just look at a book of her selfies with all those little, what are the duck lip things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll have to play this when we go to commercial, but this reminds me of that movie that came out about the woman who threw Kool-Aid on that older yeah. guy when she was out taking a walk. Right, and that went crazy. Hey, Kool-Aid, now is it's an attack. It means grab your purse, get your gun... If you have a purse, that's what done. that's what the other babies called me. By the way, when I was a baby, Kool Aid. Really? They were brutal. The other kids in your family called you that? No, the other babies, like my baby friends. I thought they were my friends, but they they would say, "Hey, Kool Aid," or were they just like baby talk it? You know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, you probably weren't eating many tomatoes at that age, right? Because you had a, you're putting on a lot of weight. Wow. Coming from you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Can you be shamed for something that happened 30 years ago? Apparently. Wow. Does it have the same lasting effect? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if you haven't resolved those issues in your life yet. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we should find someone to talk about that. Let's get, let's, yeah. Look How do you out. deal with issues from 30 years ago that you don't really remember because you were an infant? How do you resort to baby shaming? When you are a respected, mm. debatable doctor uh, with your well, own radio show. Doctor's debatable sometimes. Air quote. Uh, another question we could ask is, how were babies talking to babies? 
Don't debate the facts. Haven't you ever seen We're Look talking Who's about Talking? The feelings here, Matt. You've seen Look Who's Talking. Don't pretend you haven't. Well, that's not real. It really came out. It was a real movie. No, it was, it, that was a documentary. Didn't you see that? Was a, yeah. Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Just because Travolta's in it doesn't mean it's not a documentary. Yeah, I think we got some big problems we got to fix here. Because now you're citing who's talking as um, as a as a real life, you know, as a, as a real documentary. Of... It's not called Who's Talking. It's called Look Who's oh, Talking. Sorry, sorry again. And the sequel was Look Who's Talking Two T O O. The third mm. movie, yeah. if you can believe there was a third movie, was called Look Who's Talking. Now, I think this is a beautiful segue to our next guest, because as we talk about movies, media, superhero kind of genre, princesses, they impact us just as they have impacted Jeff in his uh, eating disorder as an infant. Infant. In fact, he even mentioned in utero eating disorder. He. uh He's been having problems. So we'll was get... kind of an introvert in the womb. Yeah, I didn't. I never wanted you, to come out. You never wanted to come out. You like you like playing by yourself. Anywho, we'll be talking superhero culture up next, folks. Stick with us. The pros and the cons of exposing your preschooler to superhero stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Ethel Seidenbaum was an upstanding senior citizen. She crocheted blankets for orphan babies, read classic literature to prison inmates, and played bingo on Saturday nights. But then one day, Ethel Seidenbaum snapped. Uh, Chief, there's been an incident. You better get down here. It was supposed to be just a pleasant stroll through the park. What do you got, Johnson? Sir, the victim is 86 years old. Was just walking down the street minding his own business. When all of a sudden, the 73-year-old perp emerged from the bushes, yielding a a, a bucket of Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah! She hurled it at him. So much red. All right, ma'am, start talking. What on earth did this poor man do to deserve this heinous assault? He knows what he did. He was smiling at me. But it was no ordinary smile. No, I've seen that smile before. A long time ago, when I was a little girl. (laughs) That smile was malicious. Delicious malice. Revenge has never tasted this good. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've seen the bedroom of any preschooler, it's probably covered wall to wall with superhero wallpaper. You know, they have the action figures or, you know. Something from the movies. They probably have superhero backpacks, pillowcases. Maybe even they fell asleep 
uh, on uh, after playing video games with their superheroes on the games in our country. It's almost impossible to escape exposing our kids to this culture, this superhero culture. But what effect does this really have on their behavior? Today, Lee Essig joins us um, to discuss a recent study that he co-authored here at Brigham Young University. Lee is a graduate student and is studying gender studies um, and the media. Lee, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for being here. What an interesting study. Now, you performed the study with uh, Professor Sarah Coyne, who um, uh, a while ago did a study on Disney princesses and the impact they have. Uh, Was this a similar study um, with superheroes as she did with the princess study? Yeah. I mean, I think it came from a similar place. Uh, Sarah, who's uh, a very, very well-known researcher in, in the media field, She's done quite a bit of research on how media could influence kids and children. And she did the first had the idea to do the princess study because she had a a daughter. um, And she was curious about how the princess culture influenced could or could influence her daughter. And now she she has four sons. And so as she had more and more sons, she was more and more interested in also understanding the culture that they would kind of be wrapped up in the the ideas from the media that they would probably um, take away. And so after doing the princess study, she was also interested in understanding how boys and girls might also be influenced by the superhero media, aside from the Disney princess media that she had already studied. Yeah, interesting. Talk about what were some of the findings. What came out of the study um, that uh, is now uh, upsetting a few people, not really upsetting them, but shocking them a little bit? Well, it was interesting because the... We've, we've kind of had this idea that superheroes, I mean, they're, they're superheroes. They're, they're good people. They're doing good things. They're saving. They're rescuing. They're protecting. And so while we knew there were, they were doing good things, we realized that their methods were normally violent um, right. in cartoons. I was raised on those cartoons. And so we were curious to see what parents thought their kids were taking away and then also investigating what the kids were actually taking away from the superhero media they were consuming. <laughs> And most parents, unsurprisingly, thought that their kids would take away the positive things, that they would be protectors and defenders and stand up for what was right. Um, And while that was true to a small degree, the vast majority of kids were actually taking away the violent aspects of the superheroes. So we asked both the parents and the kids what they liked and what they thought, and the parents what they thought their kids would take away. And kids were reporting they liked that their superheroes could kill or hit or attack or hurt or <laughs> smash. Um, and very different than, than the answers we got from the parents who thought they would take away um, justice, fairness, um, protecting behaviors, which was not really only less than 10, well, less than 10% of the kids reported something about helping or defending behaviors. So interesting. And I mean, I guess that tells us how many times we are off from what's really yeah. happening, but we feel confident. I mean, these aren't bad characters. They're they're trying to do oh. good things. They're stopping criminals, but it doesn't mean that that, you know, that point gets all the way down to the preschool kid. Right. And I think this is where a lot of the controversy, again, there, not that there's been a ton, and mostly it's been a mis representation of of the actual study that that gets confusing but 
Um, people think we're saying that superhero media is bad, that we shouldn't have our kids watch that. Uh, we've been accused of trying to take away people's childhood and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really not that. I mean, again, I was raised on these superhero TV shows um, as a kid, and I still love them as an adult. And I have a five-year-old son who also um, enjoys his uh, – he's more into, like, the cartoon Transformers. But um, I'm, I'm not saying that, th- that these are bad things, but – it is important to be aware of the influence this could have on kids. Be aware that they may not be picking up on the positive messages we want them to. Right. Um, do, do those need to then be drawn out? Do they need to be more explicit in the messaging on the show, or do we just need to discuss them more after? I think both could be helpful. One thing that is important to be aware of is this study, we looked at preschoolers, so we're looking at mostly three to five-year-olds. And even the superhero cartoons, the Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man, all the cartoons that I was raised on and the ones that they're showing now generally have a rating for Y7, which generally means kids should be seven and older to watch them. Um, Now, most parents don't really monitor the ratings, especially for kids' shows. They think if it's animated, it's a kid's show. Right. Um, And it's for all kids. But a three-year-old is going to process it very differently than a nine or 10-year-old. Um, a three-year-old is not, their brain isn't to a place, it hasn't developed to a place where it can pick up on the nuances of why they're being aggressive, what the violence is about, the reasoning or the, the moral conflict or um, reasoning that goes into their decision to act violently. The kid just, a three-year-old or a five-year-old only picks up on the superficial message, which is he just hit someone and he's cool and celebrated for it. Um, whereas a nine-year-old could pick up, oh, well, he did that because that guy was going to hurt those people or had kidnapped someone. Right. Um, so their, their reasoning is very different. And if a three-year-old is watching the same TV show as his nine-year-old brother, they're going to take totally different messages away from that media. Do, do the, does that then correct their messaging and belief over time about aggressiveness? Can one thing, though, what we do realize is that parental media um, monitoring is actually what mitigates that relationship. So aggressive media in general is associated with more aggressive attitudes and behaviors, uh, almost regardless of age. We see that from a young age all the way into adulthood. If you consume more violent or aggressive media, you're more likely to be aggressive. And if not aggressive, you're definitely more likely to be insensitive to helping. Um, Another study was done on on violent video games, and they had students, college students play a violent, half these college students played a violent video game, half of them didn't. And then they tried to see how they responded to a simulated accident. And it took 400 times longer for those that had been playing the violent media to even help, to go help a girl that was in trouble. Um, which is which is crazy, but these these are adults, and it's it's a similar thing. They may not become more violent, but they're less sensitive and less empathetic to helping. Huh? Boy, that's I mean that's that's huge. That's that's some pretty big learning there. Is um, yeah. when you when you look at this, uh, and because you're studying gender in the media and media. I mean, where does this take you? What what what's your big standout learning um, from the study you've done? So I think in 
in part, um, the socialization of gender roles, how we socialize boys and girls into different roles plays a huge part in this. Most um, aggressive media, most superhero media is targeted toward boys. Now, we are seeing more and more female superheroes. Um, at least their, their TV shows or movies are now being produced. They've been around for a long time. But even those are now targeted toward adults. So most one of the main messages boys take away from the media is to be strong and aggressive. Hmm. Uh, we see that we see that across the media, um, regardless. I mean, you can hear that in music. You can uh, see that in cartoons, through video games, through all these different media outlets. Guys are being taught that aggression is acceptable. Um, it's kind of the one anger is the one negative emotion that's socially acceptable for boys to exhibit. For girls. There are different messages um, away from aggression. They are taught better communication skills, but at the same time, there's much more influence uh, or expectation when it comes to body image for women. Um, though we are doing research now on um, how male body image, called the, women struggle with the, the thin ideal. There's an ideal that women should be thin, mm -hmm. and men with a muscular ideal that men should be big. Um, and it is associated with even some eating disorders called uh, athletic anorexia or bigorexia, where it's an eating disorder, but about for men, it's getting big and built. Yeah. Um, but the same type of unhealthy thinking. Oh, interesting stuff. Let's take a break, Lee, come back and continue the discussion about the superhero culture and the impact it's having on us. Again, more with Lee Essig and uh, as he discuss the study that he co-wrote about on our superhero culture and how it magnifies aggression, not necessarily defending behaviors. Uh, stick with us. Interesting stuff. Helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the superhero music. You can just imagine your little preschooler running in with a cape, maybe in his underoos, if those still exist. But he is a superhero, and of course he's here to save Mommy from Mean Daddy, who's trying to kiss her. And instead he breaks into a violent escapade and uh, becomes more aggressive. Is the superhero culture uh, creating more heroic behaviors of defending those that are in need, or does it actually magnify just aggressive behavior? Well, according to a recent study out of Brigham Young University with Sarah M. Coyne, who's a family life professor and media uh, researcher, along with a team, a, a big team, actually, who have helped her put this together, um, a bunch of professors, Laura Stockdale, David Nelson, along with some graduate students, Kevin Collier and Lee Essig, Jennifer Linder, and Linfield, uh, from Linfield College, they've put together this study. And joining us on the line is Lee Essig, who's one of the graduate students, and he's been teaching us that media, they, they tend to, they impact how we view ourselves, how we view femininity with kind of the skinny, the need for girls to, to feel like they need to be skinnier, uh, healthier, uh, fit, I guess. Um, men need to be more muscly, more strong. Talk about... Um, what uh, what you kind of would recommend? What are some of the recommendations coming from this latest research for parents? Yeah, I think 
I personally think there are two main takeaways. First is that parents do need to be aware of the media that their children do consume. Um, for the, the vast majority of parents do not monitor the ratings of their kids. And this is in TV, this is in movies, this is in video games. Now, they may have one. I think it's most common with movies, like rated R parents may draw a, line, a hard line right there. But many parents, their kids are playing uh, M-rated video games and they don't see a difference between that and playing a game for actual children. And this is a problem across the board with media is that parents do not know and do not monitor what their kids are consuming. Mm. Um, and the second problem, well, the second thing parents need to do is also actively engage their children in conversations about the media they do consume. Um, so there are two parts that, to this. So first, it's being aware of the media they're consuming, and second, talking to them about it. So for example, if I do have a seven-year-old that is watching these TV shows about superhero, uh, superhero shows with, violent, with some violence in them, as a parent, I need to talk to my kids about those shows. Like, so what do you like about the show? Um, what do you not like about it? What are your favorite parts? What about this character do you like? That helps me to understand very simply what they're taking away from that media. Hmm. If, if I have a seven-year-old that says, well, I like it because Batman can beat up who he wants. He's, he's the boss. He takes control or whatever. I may realize I'm, I may have a responsibility to help them start to become aware and identify the positive aspects of that media as well. Yeah. So build on that. It's like, okay, so you like that he was violent. You, like, what, what was the situation? What led him to be violent? And then once they start, well, this person was doing this and was had kidnapped this woman and so he had to go to her, save her it's like oh so he was really trying to save that woman he hmm. wasn't just trying to hurt this guy and then they start they can start to make the connections like yes he was violent but there's more context to it there was more that was happening than him just being being violent he was violent to save someone interesting and then it starts to develop a new script in their mind so that when they see someone being treated unfairly they may then see, oh, I actually have a place of how to handle this. And again, we don't want to jump to violence, um, but that could help them start to pick up on the defending behavior, the thing that we really want them to take away from the superhero media. But we have to help scaffold them. We have to help them realize and make those connections. So, and then with time, they'll start to do it on their own. Yeah, that com and that comes from the conversation you can't expect right. it to just be derived through the media itself. No. I mean, they're, the narrator of those cartoons isn't saying why they're doing it. It's, it's implied. Um, but always pick up, especially kids, they don't always pick up on the implicit messages. Right. Right. So, so that's, a, that's a big part, having the discussion, checking and monitoring, and, I mean, making sure. Are there certain, are there certain levels of, of, um, of media that, that, are, that are suitable? How much, how much TV time should they be getting? How much uh, access to these games and things should they be having? Yeah, so from a young age, uh, for children less than two or three, the um, American Pediatric Society recommends that they, they shouldn't really have screen time. Um, it's, it, it, it doesn't really help them. One, they have no ability to regulate or think through what's actually happening. As they get older, um, media is, is fine. It is good to limit it. Um, during the school day, like during the week, probably less, I think 30 minutes um, to an hour is generally what's acceptable and then no more than two hours on a weekend hmm. day. Um, 
But the thing is, kids are consuming much more than that. Uh, even infants are consuming about two hours in front of the two to three hours in front of the TV or some media every day, and then two additional hours of the TV just being on in the background where they're kind of aware, wow. but it's not their focal point. So even infants are being exposed to four to five hours of media a day. And it's getting harder. We live in a media-saturated world. Um, it's, it's everywhere. And it is a convenient way for parents to monitor their – not necessarily monitor – to kind of distract their kids. So if a kid's throwing a fit, it's easy to just put a screen in front of them to make them be quiet. Right. But it's, it's not the healthiest thing for the kids. We then wonder why our teenagers are so dependent on their phones and the media, but we're, we're shoving it in their face from the time they can – hold something. Mm-hmm. So um, parents need to do better at just uh, monitoring the amount of time that their kids use with the media, um, talk about it. And I think this is a conversation that needs to happen uh, throughout the lifespan, talking about what the media is telling us, because a girl at five years old may pick up on some, but the teenage, their teenager is going to pick up on very different messages and it could have greater implications for her. So calling out the the unrealistic expectations of the physical of the female body that the media puts on women or for men call um, where those roles or the ideas that the media gives us about what it means to be a man or a woman could be wrong. Oh yeah. And talking about those things, then our kids become critical consumers of the media. I think that's the most important thing. And we need to learn to do that as adults as well. Be critical of the media we consume, all of it. Where is it coming from? What is it telling us? What does it want us to believe? Great. That's such um, great insight as a dad is to know I've got this, I've got this responsibility um, and, and it's okay to push back on it. Yeah. Yeah. And then with time, they'll become their own. um, They'll be able to do it on their own. They'll become critical by themselves of, of the media and, and cartoon. I mean, commercials, we see this in little kids, um, kids who are watching more TV are more materialistic really? um, in part because they're seeing a lot more commercials. So they're seeing more and more things to have, but they also don't have a good concept of money or of earning things or, or how those things fit into the real world. Right. Um, but becoming even critical of those commercials of what is it trying to do? It's trying to sell you on something. Um, and these are conversations I can even have with my five-year-old about this commercial or this um, toy that he wants and talk about like what it is about that toy that he likes and what, how the commercial is framing it so that it makes it think that that is the thing he has to have to be mm. happy now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such great insight, Lee. Thank you for your time and just and the research. And we got to have you back and just to kind of pick your brain about all of these other things, the materialism, uh, the body image stuff. It's it's a big deal what the media is doing, con- whether consciously or not, but whether we're conscious or not as well. We got to get our act together. We got to get in this game. We'll take a break. Come back, folks. Continue. Um, the show, we're going to be visiting with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Find out about the the basketball game today. BYU's in the NIT. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the fun music, which means we're going to throw it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. What's Good going on? Good morning. What's happening? Sounds like the circus is rolled into town. Yeah. And 
I hear there's going to be more of the circus at the NIT game. It kind of is a circus. Hey, yeah. Jerry, I don't know if you guys heard this because you're so busy with BYU sports. Hey, Utah, University of Utah lost. So that dream of BYU playing Utah in the NIT? Kind of disappointing. Gone. Right? But at the same time, yes, not really. Disappointing yet not. Why? I don't, because I don't, it's because they lost. I oh, didn't expect good. BYU True. to get to the title game per se. I'm yeah. hoping they get to New York City. Wouldn't that be great? But Elijah Bryant is out for the season with the knee injury. One of BYU starters. So another starter out for BYU and make it three now. Holy cow. What's happening? Yeah. This isn't good. Injury riddled. So today we're going to talk about what what would you, uh, how would you define a successful NIT for BYU? What needs to happen for you to go, hey, that was a success? Mm, That's a good question. And the one seed in BYU's quadrant, they don't call it a region like the NCAA. Jerem has been dropping uh, the word algebra quadrant <laughs> yeah. so much this morning. He loves quadrants. Uh, quadrant, uh, <laughs> uh, the mitochondria around the electrons. The nuclei. Those are the biggest yeah, ones I know. Those are really good. Uh, the one seed in BYU's region is out. So if BYU wins tonight, they could play two seed Houston conceivably. Uh, wow. Then have an easier path, right? Wouldn't that be great? That would be great, but the, then first, they take UT the, Arlington tonight. But they take they take if they take the NIT effectively, what are they? They're the sixty uh, fifth well, best team. Well, tell me no. that. Tell me this: Who won the NIT last year? Uh, I have no idea. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no one remembers or cares. But well, you remember and care if you win it. I, but I mean, like, is it a thing for anybody outside of that team? No. No. It, I hope that BYU has a nice run here. It'd be it'd be nice. It's fun to keep playing, you know, yeah, into March sure. Madness, even though maybe the NIT is less mad. Yeah, it's pretty nice. It's a nice. Like I said, it'd be the nice. nice invitation it'd be nice. tournament. Yeah. Not crazy. Oh, that's it. The nice invitation yeah. tournament. You, listen, this season's been disappointing for BYU. They were hoping to make the NCAA tournament. They lost way too many games. It, they were injured. They were the youth played a bigger role than we thought. It was disappointing, mm-hmm. but. BYU could uh, get up 25 wins, get to New York City. That'd be that'd be nice. That'd New be, York City. That'd be nice silver lining. <laughs> I like gold more than silver, though. Yeah, I do too. Sure. I like go. platinum the most, but they don't use that in <laughs> yeah. these. If you're a recording artist, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're Mariah Carey or something. I mean, that's a brag. Hey, I don't know if you guys heard the other news. Um, we just found out from a BYU study that superheroes, uh, they, they actually they don't make they don't make preschoolers defend other people more they actually just make them more aggressive by watching superheroes that makes complete sense to me or missionaries beat up did you see, did that? You see that that was the great that not that so was that, that was sad scary <laughs> i felt you, bad for the other guy the other missionary so there's a video we'll post it on our page <laughs> two lds missionaries in brazil a guy pulls a gun on him one of the missionaries the bigger guy grabs the gun defends himself yeah, defends himself it defends everybody, it looks like. He does, yeah. Well, here's you want to know how that story, like the, the best possible ending to that story? What? Is that the missionary who defended himself and beat up the other guy that pointed a gun at him, if eventually he baptizes him into the church. Oh, now you're talking. That is like the complete... Like that that's like the circle of life right there that is what is, that would be. That, that would be the perfect ending to that story. But it actually looked I mean a better more probably more likely ending 
is just the one guy will go to jail. Yeah, the guy's going to jail, and this missionary is now a legend. That's right. He is the <laughs> baddest is a legend. missionary. I want to know his name. That guy's a legend. Now, you went to Brazil on your LDS uh, mission, mission slash trip, trip vacation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was never jumped, no. Yeah, I was wondering, because you never experienced There were a few violence. people I did want to beat up, but I was never jumped. We're, Those now, were just companions. <laughs> would you, which... Those are my companions. That's right, my buddies. Which, one would you, which, which missionary would you have been? The one that went crazy and beat the other guy oh, up, or I the one that would have been the second guy. Yeah, I would have been down the street saying, See, "I would have stepped back, not stepped forward." Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're, you're not. There. I mean, you're not there to die. I'm not. Well, I got a family. If to I was going to die, that'd be where I'd want to go. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'd be the second guy for sure. Oh, Jason would be the first guy. Jason's bad to the bone. Yeah. <laughs> Jason'd be like. Let's throw down now. Let's but, do this. No, but Jason would put a mouth guard in. And then in. he'd leave a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jason would insert his mouth guard. He'd put his and then, ear And then he would leave a book of woman on. with him. That's right. After two. He'd put his... What's the man... What's the thing they wear in um, wrestling? The a singlet. The singlet? He, he, Jason he, has a singlet. I do not. On Jason, at all times. I know. Don't you wear a singlet under your clothes? I do not, but... I think I would look pretty good in a singlet. Not to brag, but I, I'd pull off a singlet. Like Let's just say that. Yeah, okay, I gotta let you guys go. Anything else on the show that we gotta pay nope. attention to? Nope. Are you showing that video of the missionaries? No. No. I just. I think. Nor that... are we showing Jason in a singlet. Thank heavens. <laughs> ratings you know bonanza. Too bad for ratings. <laughs> All right, guys, it sounds like a great show. Uh, it sounds like you're ready to go. Knock them dead. Let's party. And we'll have a little uh, nice invitational tournament party later. Let's I like do it. it. I like it. Peace out, yo. Have a good one. Yeah. That picture of that missionary. I mean, a guy pulls a gun. They pull up on a motorcycle. The dude gets off with a gun in his hand. And the next thing you know, the missionary is holding the gun up in the air because he's a big dude. Kind of stopping the guy with his left hand, I think it was. Is he holding it up in the air or is he pointing it at him? I can't. I think he first pointed it, then he realized I probably ought not be pointing the gun. (laughs) Then he held it up in the air. And what people in Brazil may not know is, you know, um, uh, an American that maybe grew up in the Midwest or in the Mountain West, they or in the South, they know guns. You know, a lot of these people grew up around guns, and so. They know a lot about them. So you served an LDS mission in Chile, in right? In Argentina. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. So I served an LDS mission in Russia. Da. And I never ran into any troubles with Didn't you? you know kids picking on us or trying to rob us or anything. But whenever you would hear stories about it, it was always yeah. the biggest missionaries yeah. that were getting into these situations. Why do they go after the biggest most towering, I think threatening they, missionaries possible. I, it makes no sense because I saw I had missionaries that were six six, and in South America, a lot of the people there aren't very tall; they're small, and it, it's not smart. You don't mess with a guy that's ripped and played college football. And yet they always go for the big ones. They do. They do. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it might be just a little machismo. Like I can, if I take out the big guy, I own this world. Cheese. But this guy ended up taking mm. out. Yeah, in fact, uh, Terry brought up a really good prison um, analogy. You always, in prison, he learned, you always take out the boss. You always take out the big guy. That's just what you do. Now, is this coming from his first or second prison stint? Well, I think it's actually both, and it's his video games that he played because he had a lot of video games. So maybe there is a correlation. There's totally a correlation. He pretends like there's not, but we, we all know there is. We know there's a definite correlation. Hey, um, crazy $300,000 parking space could be yours 
in Park Slope. Listen to this. The hottest real estate in Brooklyn may not be a closet-sized slab of concrete on Union Street. A parking spot at 8845 Union Street uh, parking garage is on the market for $300,000 to have a parking spot. Three hundred grand Makes sense. Like other condo properties, whoever buys the parking spot will have to pay monthly charges. In this case, $240 in monthly maintenance fees plus an extra $51 in taxes just to have a parking space. That's crazy. Just four years ago, a spot in the exact same garage sold for then an eye-popping $80,000. Now the $300,000 price tag is comparable to asking prices for one-bedroom apartments in other parts of New York. But if you go to the South or the Midwest, do you know what you can buy for three hundred grand? You could buy a lot, a house. You could buy a house or eight trailers. I'm learning on SimCity. How many parking spots could you buy, though? No, you you could buy acreage. You could park anywhere you want on your 20-acre property. What's wrong with this world? And do we love our cars that much? That, that, that That's what we're going to do? Hmm. Interesting. Hey, as you know, we like to end with a hero story. A teen has been hailed as a hero for protecting a niece during a home invasion. The invasion was reported Monday afternoon, according to Montclair Police News Release. Police say the 14-year-old was babysitting when she heard a knock at the door. And when Savannah Jones looked out the peephole, a man she didn't know was on the porch, KTLA reported. She hid the little girl in the bathroom and called her own mother. While she was on the phone, she heard the man kick in the door. So she went to hide the four-year-old Zoe, continuing to text her mother, telling KTLA that she was afraid the intruder would hear them. Savannah's mother, Maria Muratala, called a neighbor who called police before checking out the home. The intruder left the rans- after ransacking the house, but without finding the girls. How cool is that? Smart thinking, 14-year-old girl, Savannah Jones. Saved. Two people. It's awesome. That's a hero, my friends. And that's the show. We love doing it. We love being with you. We can't do it without you. So join us again tomorrow. We'll have more fun, more ideas, giving you more information to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, make it a great one and take care of each other. We'll talk tomorrow.